0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show
0: at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we do everything we can to give you the information you need. To make better decisions, live a healthier, happier life. Today, no exception. And it is heating up in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump, President Trump, puts, uh, puts on a pretty good show last night as he announces his new nominee for the Supreme Court. Judge Gorsuch is his name. And, uh, boy, an incredible um, resume. Yeah. This guy's the real deal you know
3: you mentioned that he put on a good show they even had countdowns going on, on tv it was
2: <laughs> it was really pretty smart because preceding him on cnn was um was what's her bucket nancy pelosi mm-hmm. and so it was like an hour of nancy party and donald wanted i think to mess up nancy's party as well as change the subject of his from his immigration ban or his travel ban, which now we're debating if ban is what it is. Did you see what the
0: CNN's doing next week? No. Oh, yeah. A little it's head-to-head. Bernie Sanders versus Ted Cruz. Yeah, that's going to be a party. Ooh, the is fight. this that celebrity boxing No, but they're building oh. it that way. Even like the graphics, it looks like it's a prize fight.
2: This is CNN realizing that when you put people head-to-head like they did during the election, you can get really good ratings.
0: And apparently the politicians think it's a good idea, too. They keep jumping in. My well, money would
3: be on uh, Bernie Sanders, by the way. Yeah, he's scrappy. He'd be like see. Rocky, and Ted Cruz would be
2: more like a dirty fighter, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting because I don't remember CNN doing this back in the day no. when Obama won because it, anybody would want that platform, right? right. This This one-hour show to – I mean, it's smart. This is what you need. You need the politicians – to be debating constantly, but not just in a you know a thirty second soundbite. Uh, boy, oh boy, have we got a lot to talk about. We will get uh, to the Supreme Court nominee, which is now it sounds like it's going to be a fight. It sounds like the Democrats are going to pretty much demand a sixty p- person uh, majority, right? yeah, or they'll filibuster. Yeah, yeah, that so, was going to be the case no matter what. Anybody well, the, well, that they presented. Ex- well, the problem is not historically. Like historically. If you've got the cred, if you've got the reputation, if you've got the degrees from where he's got them, they would pass you through. But they're mad because the Republicans didn't pass um, our our good buddy Garland through. So they think – they're calling this a stolen seat.
0: Yeah. So they started it. Well – If you go back to October, there's quotes (laughs) from uh, Senator McCain – yeah, saying that whoever the Democrats put up, we're not putting them through. Yeah, right. This will be a fight to the end, and so now the you know the, this is the tables crazy. Tables are flipped, and the same thing. Are coming.
2: Well, and then and then if you really go back, then you get into Judge Bork and being oh, yeah. borked by the Democrats, and you know, Orrin Hatch is really he's saying this is crazy. This guy is. Imminently qualified. You've sure. already voted him through yep.
0: unanimously. Hatch also said Garland was eminently yeah. qualified. Oh, t- the wonderful guy.
2: <laughs> but yeah, they, they were saying it's just bad timing. Right. This though, are they going to just stall for four years? Who knows? Because if they do, then we then everyone's saying we're going for the
0: nuclear option. Of the people who are on the court now, apparently the average would pro- or approval time would put it around May. Yeah. If there's a oh, yeah. a long fight and.
2: You know, the uh, – all three of um, President Obama's people, they passed through, right? All three. They – you know, there was a little battle. Sure. But no one was borked. But
0: who approves it? <laughs> Senate, The Senate. And at that point, the Democrats had some advantage there.
2: Yes. So, now, so this is going to be game time, folks, and um, we'll get into that. And interesting, perfect timing for our guest today as well. We're going to be talking with Dr. Justin Guest, who's the author of the book, uh, the, the New Minority, White Working Class Politics in the Age of Immigration and Inequality. He's an immigration researcher, and he'll, he's also an expert in Muslim Uh, immigration. And uh, he's going to be talking to us really today about his book and how on earth can whites be a minority when whites are the majority? But he will, I think, beautifully be able to describe for us what's, you know, what's the wave that Donald Trump is riding? And is it going to last? Or is it really just Donald? Mm. uh, He's going to probably suggest it's bigger than Donald. Much, much, much bigger than Trump. Nothing's,
3: nothing's bigger than Donald. If you Just can believe Donald. that.
2: <laughs> if you can believe it. So we'll get to all that fun. Today, by the way, is also National Signing Day for all the athletes. That, this is where all the high school athletes get to say where they're going to play ball. So lots of people picking hats on TV. And a, lot of the, a lot of our sports guys are here early running around and they already look exhausted.
0: Well, they're trying to call high school kids on their cell phones to see where they're going. It's really intrusive. (laughs) Oh, those are the days, huh? So we'll get to all that fun,
2: plus other headlines um, and, uh, you know, empty news as well, the Matt Townsend news. But first, let's get to the real news with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country?
0: As we talked about, President Donald Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch to be the uh, justice on the Supreme Court on Tuesday night, saying in a speech at the White House, this must be the most transparent judicial process in history. Gorsuch, 49, judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Tenth Circuit as the youngest Supreme Court nominee in 25 years. He's 49. A graduate of Columbia, Oxford, and Harvard Law, so he... He ticks off those boxes on Every. elite schools. Wow. He was nominated to the federal bench by uh, President George W. Bush in 2006. He is a conservative in the tradition of Supreme Court Justice Antonine Scalia, who passed away in 2016. During his speech on Tuesday, Gorsuch referred to Scalia as a lion of the law. Mike Pence will go to Capitol Hill today. He's going to talk to moderate Democrats and those Democrats who are soon up for election, oh. uh, re-election, so they can see if they can uh, turn some hearts and minds, I guess, to the the cause of the Supreme Court here. Within minutes of President Trump's announcement that he is nominating Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, uh, Democratic leaders released statements ranging from harsh to scathing. Representative Nancy Pelosi said it came as no surprise that Trump, who displayed throughout his campaign relentless contempt for women, nominated someone hostile to women's rights. Mm. Gorsuch ruled on uh, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. Also, the little sisters of the poor, both of them having to deal with some of the contraceptives and Obamacare, those kind of issues, and he ruled against what Nancy Pelosi would have wanted. Fewer than one-third of Americans say they believe President Trump's new immigration ban will help protect them from terrorism, according to a new Reuters opinion poll. Yesterday, I shared with you a poll from the 1st of January saying that people were a little bit more accepting of that kind of a a concept. Now the law is enacted, and 31% of Americans believe that uh, it will actually help the problem they wow don't, they don't think it's effective or you know you know not a majority think it won't be effective yeah only uh let's see here the study conducted uh in the last few days found that one in two americans 49 percent back the ban but only about 31 percent of those polls said they believed it would make them more safe hmm. interesting there um and i think this is probably the most important news of the day what we have, uh, every day we deal with you know, a lot of heavy issues and stuff, but this one I think would hit home with every person across the country. Wow, what? Pig farmers, struggling okay. to keep up with the vast U.S. appetite for bacon, causing reserves to hit the lowest level in 50 years and spending prices flying upwards. So bacon is what? more expensive. We're
2: running, no, we're running out of bacon? We're
0: running out of bacon. As it says, our bacon reserves are running low. Oh, no. It's, it, this is a national crisis. Today's pig farmers are setting historic records by producing more pigs than ever, says Rich Deaton, president of the very influential Ohio Pork Council.
4: Mm. Yet
0: our reserves are still depleting. Deaton reported Tuesday that demand for frozen pork belly is outpacing farmers' ability to produce and sell it. They can't keep up with America.
2: You can't. How do you? I mean, yeah. Everyone loves bacon. He
0: added, while bacon may become more expensive for consumers, rest assured the pork industry will not run out of supply. So the reserves are down, but we're going to be there for you, America. Pork. It does a body
2: good.
3: I had me some bacon this morning. Did you really? Oh, yeah. Just two strips.
2: Two strips of bacon. Two strips a day keeps the doctor... Really close. really close <laughs> and ready to do surgery. Wow, you had bacon?
3: You had time to make bacon? No, well it was pre-made. No, I I made it oh, wow. a few days ago. Oh. And then just heated it up.
0: It's not your pre-cooked.
3: No, 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 no. Just not none fa- of
2: that
0: space stuff. Like jerky? The, it sounds called, like jerky. It's called fakin.
2: Oh, fakin. Which is turkey bacon, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Ah, turkey
0: bacon. No no one takes down a turkey and thinks, ooh, bacon. That's not how that it's, works.
2: Turkey bacon, isn't that called Taken? <laughs> or is that a movie with Liam Neeson? That's a great movie. Okay. Yeah. I like watching Taken with bacon. There's a mix. Mm. Hey, um, so it happened. The Supreme Court and, you know, Donald Trump, It's the. It, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened. Right. The most transparent
0: you know, nomination process ever of a justice in the world. It, the, the, the presentation was prime uh, primetime TV worthy. It had a uh, applause track because they bred in all the white yeah. house staffers at a laugh track. Cause they thought the president's very funny.
2: <laughs> you need your tracks on there. Yeah.
0: It's, he brings them with him. He goes to press conferences with yeah. his people to cheer him on. So yeah, there they are.
2: Oh, this is great. It's great. The, the reality is you, he's a very, 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 very good on paper candidate
0: says who oh yeah as they said straight out of central casting
2: yeah uh he did he i mean he's been on the appellate court straight out of and yeah, he's 49 which is one of the problems I read his, for the democrat
0: his mother was the first uh what EPA it, secretary. EPA secretary the yeah. first female EPA secretary in
2: fact uh, well and I we got to ask Joe Cannon cuz Joe Cannon served as an assistant administrator on the EPA, oh nice, in the Reagan administration, so it would be under possibly under his mother. Oh wow, we got to get in there. Maybe Joe will be in the. He know. had
0: to leave his home in Denver because yeah. he's in the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is covers right. the Western U.S. He left his home in Denver, going out the back way down a dirt road, so that because people were watching yeah. his house, he had to sneak. He had to sneak out. There's also a a judge from Pittsburgh. Who it was leaked that he right. was also heading to DC. Was C. he? Did he make it? They... Or uh, now the reports coming out that he was actually on assignment.
2: Yeah, he was just going. Hey, I'm just going to. A, I'm just going to a meeting. He had
0: a, a, a meeting or something to attend in DC. But uh, the the word was leaked that he was all there. That Trump was bringing in two candidates to do kind of a yeah. bachelor rose ceremony thing with <laughs> with these guys.
2: It uh, honestly, it's going to be a knockdown drag out battle, and I wonder if. I don't know that the Dems really would have fought this as hard as they are if there hadn't been the immigration issue. Right. Because that really fueled everyone up because— It gave them a backbone all of a sudden. I mean, th- this does make sense that they're mad about Merrick Garland, except that was—that's been inevitable for the last six months. So that's not what that's not what is creating this energy. They do, that's what they're throwing it on. The energy is coming from the last week. <laughs> but here's the fear. Um, because apparently what the what they are going for now is they have to have a majority, right? Sixty percent of the Senate has to nominate. If not, though, if they can't turn eight people for toward this uh, nomination, then they could do what they call the nuclear choice and change all of the rules that no longer have a filibuster proof majority or whatever. Right.
0: Which they don't want to do because it's kind of a thing that Which lasts, Harry Reid so.
2: did with other courts. Yes. They just saved the Supreme Court decisions and the Republicans obliged and helped them in a way get their people through. And Democrats don't appear to be willing to do the same thing. Right. So the, Dem- the Republicans are saying it's going to happen one way or another. I think for the democracy, it would be great if we could just agree on this one and let the next one get
0: ugly. Cuz this one would re, would put the court back to the same balance it yeah. was before where it's basically divided with Roberts in the middle yeah. as the wild card because he's kind of, you know, shifty on you can't say he's liberal or conservative right. on issues. So and it would put it back to where it was. It would be
2: back to neutral and this guy's very Sc- Scalia-ish. He's yeah. very total constitutionalist. Whatever's in the constitution is the only thing we base our decisions on. Versus whatever, but I, uh, let's get to uh, some quotes. What what would be? Um, I, I guess it's not just the uh, political world that's loving this. Jimmy Kimmel himself is even um, having some fun. <laughs> Set up this Jimmy Kimmel moment.
0: Uh, so you've seen a Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah. There's several people on the show. Uh, he's talking to Meatloaf. He's talking to Little Me- John. Meet- Meatloaf is a singer. A singer. Little John's a rapper. He- At- yeah. yeah, yeah. There's somebody else. I can't remember his name, but he's in there. He'll reference him in the in the clip. And then at the end, he makes his selection for the SCOTUS Celebrity Apprentice oh, style wow. selection. Okay.
5: I mean, he's totally messed up, fellas, but you have to admit, he's just a different kind of a guy. Meatloaf, this is really bothering
0: you, isn't it?
6: Yes. Yes, sir. Well, then you
0: know what, Meatloaf? I'm going to make you very happy. Okay. Gary. Gary Busey. You're fired. Little John, you're fired. Ooh. Love, you're fired, <laughs> Judge Neil Gorsuch. You're very talented. You're very unique. You're an amazing guy. You're hired. Ooh, well, there you go. That was a big announcement. He's the decider, right there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man, that is just so. Because Donald tried to set
0: this up as I mean, it was almost it was very somber, and yep. it was
2: just yeah.
0: Meatloaf was very, very uncomfortable in that room. <laughs> I think him and Gary Busey had something going on that season. So.
2: Here, here are some clips um, about Gorsuch and what, uh, what you might be able to expect.
7: Back to the fact that in our legal order, it is for Congress and not the courts to write new laws. It is the role of judges to apply, not alter the work of the people's representatives. A judge who likes every outcome he reaches is very likely a bad judge. Stretching for results he prefers rather than those the law demands. Standing here in a house of history and acutely aware of my own imperfections, I pledge that if I am confirmed, I will do all my powers permit to be a faithful servant of the
3: Constitution
2: and laws of this great country. Judge, that's, that's Judge Neil Gorsuch, uh, by the way, from the Colorado um, 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. And who, and by the way, with his wife... Honestly, anyway,
7: can was, you imagine? She, was she
2: there with him? Yeah, she was there with him. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine being in this position where you're 49 years old? He studied under two. He clerked under two of the Supreme Court justices, Justice White, Justice Kennedy. And um, he he now could be there. So how overwhelming is that? Not to mention the fact that he now knows half of the country hates his guts and don't they don't even know him, right? But he's and not a Democrat, so. he, right, and he's not. And the crazy thing about it is, he now has to sit and take heat for decisions, two decisions probably that he made on abortion or or uh, women's um, you know health decisions and women's rights in health choice. That he's made. And so it's scary. This is why we may not be able to get really good people to run for office to do these kinds of jobs, because if he's going to get shredded,
3: why would you do that? You know, I can really sympathize with him because I'm training under you. Yeah. And I've stepped up on occasion to host the show when you're not here. Right. And we, we had one somebody call up and say, I miss Matt.
2: Yeah, that was my mom. So that was my mother. Did she shred you? Yeah, yeah. She yeah. said she, she said she was going to.
3: So I know exactly exactly
2: how we, It's the exact same thing. Is it a lot of pressure? Yeah. I, I don't believe you. My mom's not that bad. She's a great woman. Ah, well. Best of luck to um to the whole process, folks. Remember, this is America's process. And honestly, this this may not be the only. Supreme Court nominee, right? There may be more coming down the road as well. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we have a wonderful guest that's going to enlighten us about the energy behind the Trump movement and uh, I think give us some insight as to what's really also going on with this immigration ban, why so many people would choose to and be behind the idea of banning people from coming into the country. Interesting insight. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, the white working class surprised the country this fall, last fall, actually, with the the swing of the election. Did you notice? Has anybody noticed? And President Donald Trump rode the wave into the White House. What is the reason behind this political uprising amongst historically, uh, you know, a, a, a civically inactive or, or maybe less engaged um, group of people? Here to help us understand this phenomenon is Dr. Justin Guest, a professor of public policy at George Mason University and author of the book, The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality. Dr. Guest, thank you so
5: much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me.
2: I, it couldn't be better timing to have an immigration expert on our show, a researcher as well as um, a political Uh, In you know, researcher as well that can help us understand what's going on with the middle class. How how come, um, for example, just the ban, the the travel ban. So many people cannot fathom um, how anybody would want to keep people out of this country. And so help us understand what's happening in middle America that is creating maybe a new minority, as your book suggests, or is at least creating this energy that Trump is, is, is taking advantage of?
5: Well, there, I think that these are two topics that are very much related. You know, The energy behind Donald Trump's campaign was, was that he was harvesting a lot of frustration that had been there for a number of decades. Uh, white working class people, folks who are who are on the poor side of things, often don't have university education. They've been struggling for a long time to really get back on their feet since the end of the manufacturing era. And you know, when people talk about the Great Recession in starting in 2007, for so many white working class people in the United States, that Great Recession really began in something like 1977. Mm. You know, the the average wage for for white working class men in particular has remained stagnant for multiple decades now. And, you know, they've slowly began to feel marginalized, not just economically, but also politically as political parties began to pay less and less attention to them. And then eventually socially, there's Mm. a sense of a cultural threat as well. And that's really where immigration comes in. I think that for many white working class people, there is a sense that immigrants are sort of passing them by on the highway, moving up the American ladder while they stay stagnant. And, you know, uh, to me, you know, this is a very related subject matter. Yeah. Um, But but, and and, and there's a sense, there's this perception amongst white working class folks that their economic uh, despair and frustration and immigrants um, ascendance in the United States are somehow related to each other. And is- Donald Trump really fulfilled those perceptions by telling people that they were related to each other. Yeah. And that immigrants are really the source of a lot of America's problems. And, you know, personally speaking, I don't I don't see that as being true. I think that really the source of white working class folks' problems is about structural problems in our economy that hold back not just white the white working class people, but also black working class people, brown working class people. All working class people are held back by a lot of the economic structural problems that we have. Um, but Donald Trump has had an enormous amount of success at persuading people that really these economic challenges are not the issue, and rather it's actually a cultural differences that are driving things. Yeah, and that's why so and that's why so many people um, use uh, have, have been able to use immigration as this wedge.
2: You, you, I, I watched a video of you. I, I think it was at George Mason talking about. Kind of the history of Youngstown, Ohio, I believe it was, and it was the most eloquent description I think of what happened because it went from the boon to the bust. Just walk us through that, and um, and 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 help us understand what it means today.
5: Sure, sure. You know, Youngstown, Ohio, is is in many ways a symbol of what's happened throughout the American Rust Belt and in various other cities in the United States that used to be highly industrialized. You know, during the manufacturing era, a place like Youngstown, Ohio, was like a Silicon Valley for steel. People came to Youngstown, Ohio from every corner of the world because they had an enormous amount of jobs in those steel mills and factories. You know, and even if you lost your job, you can get a job the next day, they used to say. And, you know, the the mills would be running, pumping out black smoke, three shifts a day, uh, seven days a week, mm. and times were very good for the in, the in those days. People had you know good wages, stable jobs. The the wages were good enough that many people's spouses didn't have to work, and the factories also were engaged in the community. They they helped support you know carnivals, newsletters, bowling tournaments. You know you name it, and so it was kind of like a white working class campus. And it's important to emphasize that when I say white working class campus. You know, white people in the United States come from everywhere, all parts of the world, right. particularly Europe and the Middle East. And so, you know, white people in those days and and still today included people who were Lebanese, who were Jewish, who were Italian, who were Irish, who were Hungarian or Serbian. So, really, it was a it was a it was a melting pot that really represents the United States. And times were good; they you know times were really booming. And then in 1977, Matt. The first mill shut its doors on one random Monday, September 19th, seventy six. Just
2: out of nowhere.
5: Out of nowhere, no warning, locked its workers out.
4: Oh,
2: wow.
5: And all of a sudden, this set into motion a domino effect where every single mill shut their doors and closed up and moved offshore or just shut down completely. And that led to the loss of about 50,000 jobs in about five years. Oh, wow. I mean, that is a collapse like yeah. people today could ever even really understand. You know, I mean, this is extraordinary. And that an into motion, not only economic collapse, but a sense of social collapse. Domestic abuse rates began to rise. Divorce rates went up, suicide rates skyrocketed, and eventually Youngstown, Ohio became the murder capital of wow. the United States of America. Yeah. And so what this reveals is that economic problems lead to social problems in a sense of social distress. And for so many white working class people, I think that they have been told and and they or or concluded on their own that immigrants are the source of these uh, economic problems and that this is both a social and an economic problem. When in reality, Matt, immigrants are subject to the exact same structural economic constraints the same inequality, the same sense that the American dream doesn't work as well anymore, it doesn't work that much better for immigrants either right now. And, and so I think that you know, until our society really understands that, um, Donald Trump is going to feel emboldened to create uh, things like uh, – policies like this ban – um, that really seems to be quite unpopular in the United States right now,
2: so is it so because then it creates the nationalist kind of movement that also is happening in Europe, and you eloquently cover that in your book and in other and some of your articles um it's it's so it creates nationalism it creates you know lock the borders populism um but what you're saying, though, is it's really probably initially driven economically. Then it creates social issues. But the social and economic issues are suffered by everybody. But then it's being labeled. Is that what's happening by politicians and by others as an immigration issue?
5: You know, as a society, Matt, we're stronger when we are united and when, when the boundaries between us, whether they're religious, ethnic or racial, are, bro- are broken down. But for politicians, Matt, divisions are tools.
4: Mm. When
5: you can divide society in a way that favors you in the sense that the division ha- keeps the majority of people on your side, then you're going to win a lot of elections. And oftentimes politicians historically have used ethnic or religious divisions in their favor by attacking or or. Uh, vilifying minority groups who really don't have the same kind of capacity to defend themselves. And, you know, just to take a really old example, I mean, this is, we're talking the 19th century. Karl Marx, the old philosopher, the economic philosopher was lamenting how the upper classes in in England would pit the Irish against the English and the English against the Irish. There are a lot of Irish immigrants coming into Britain back in those days and he would, he would argue that the English aristocracy was using the division between Irish and English people in order to divide the working classes so that they could conquer them, so that the British upper class could stay in power. Hmm. And you know, those kinds of ideas about dividing and conquering working class people um, really hold true even to this day and age. And you know when you think about refugees as a particular group of people, these are the world's most vulnerable right. folks out there. I mean, these are people who have been displaced by armed conflict and, and often persecution by government. And it's worth bearing in mind that in many cases, the conflicts that they were displaced by are conflicts that we ourselves as Americans have had our armed forces involved in. Yeah, in or yeah, we created, like Iraq, right, yeah. In places like Iraq, Somalia, Libya— Those aren't just countries that have had wars. Those are countries that have had wars that we have involved ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Yemen is on that list. We haven't gone to war with Yemen by putting boots on the ground, but more drone attacks take place in Yemen than anywhere else. So these are wars that we are complicit in, and they're displacing people who are average folks who are caught in the crossfire. And the refugee program is a way of rescuing them. It's called humanitarian migration for a reason. It's the humanitarian thing to do. And you know whether you look at it as you know the Christian thing to do, or the right thing to do morally, or the constitutional, the American thing to do, it doesn't really matter. But many people feel like it's the right thing to do, and you know it, it's a shame because refugees, in particular, really have no way to defend themselves from from these policies right now. Right? There, there's a very small constituency there.
2: Well, yeah, they're not going to go lawyer up. I mean. No, it's, they, they're no. just they're, they're just
5: lawyer up they're not going to ch- charge the streets or right. you know to Congress, you know, and frankly, you know Muslims more broadly in the United States, while they are an actually a relatively well integrated population of people, their average income is actually higher than the average American, their average education is higher than the average American you know th- these are pretty well integrated folks they're still a very small minority, they represent mm. about maybe one a, percent a of the American population. So it's easy to pit 99% of the American population against 1% of people who really don't have that strong of a voice. And that's what I mean by dividing society in that way. And so while I think it's very inspiring, and I've always been very inspired at the way that white working class people have tried to overcome their very underestimated state, uh, I think that you know in many ways the current administration is getting ahead of itself. Uh, if they're thinking that this is really what is going to make white working class people better off,
2: mm. and especially, I mean, and they'll they will argue they're just doing it to make sure we're vetting. So they're they're calling it extreme vetting. It's about vetting. It's not about banning. But no matter what is happening, the energy is hung on other stuff. Uh, it sounds like this the the white collapse. Um, but let's do this, Justin. Let's take a break. Come back. I, I want to ask you uh, two things um, that I know you have some pretty powerful insight on. One is, is this racism then? Because whites are now the new minority, you're calling it. But is it just a bunch of, you know, angry whites that are racist? Um, And I think you've got powerful insight into that because I I don't think we understand it. How can whites be minorities when they are the majority? Um, That, along with more insight into... Why political parties like to divide us? There's there's benefits to the parties. There's money to be made. There's a lot of theories out there. Um, it's easier to get voters in certain demographic categories if we break people into into little pieces instead of holes. So more with Dr. Justin Guest. Uh, really incredible opportunity to understand what's going on and what's behind this movement that's uh, Trump. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show welcome back friends to the matt townsend show we are speaking with dr justin guest and uh justin is a professor of public policy at George Mason University and the author of The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in the Age of Immigration and Inequality. He also is uh, he's, uh, he's a researcher and uh, researches comparative politics, minority political behavior, and immigration policy. So we're just honored to have him on today when immigration's making such a big deal um also though it's really being driven by this what i believe might uh, it might be best described as this white minority dr guest thank you for being with us again my pleasure matt talk to us about how could um how can whites be a minority when they are the majority
5: they're not i mean that the, the objective truth is that uh you know if we think of minoritization as a matter of number white people in the United States you know, are about 61% of the population right now. And really, even when non-whites make up more than half the country, whites will remain the plurality of the United States population for quite a while to come. Right. Um, so really, when, when, when entitling the book, The New Minority, it was more a reflection of how my white working class uh, respondents feel. And many of them feel like minorities in the countries that they once defined, hmm. and you know I see this minoritization really much more uh, not about number but about power, yeah, and that's really what minority being a minority is about it's feeling somehow disempowered and for a while now, many you know white working class people who used to be the backbone of their of the political system and a very important political constituency. Um, and uh, you know, in, in much better economic shape. Even if you didn't have a university degree back then, they don't—they don't feel so powerful anymore. And that's why this re- this election was such a revolution, because there's a sense that they have a greater sense of consciousness and, and that they have a greater sense of power, and they flex their muscles.
4: Mm.
2: And it seems like um, what President Obama did really well. Uh, and I think Democrats seem to do it better, is they play to constituencies. They play to many, many, many different constituencies. And um, so why why have we been broken down into constituencies? Why is it that we choose to break us into little parts instead of try to create more unity between all of the parts?
5: Well, first off, you know, Matt, I think it's worth acknowledging that you know, for a very long time, white working class people were a democrat part of a democratic. Right. Exactly. They, you know, that's right. The unions the, and the yeah. They were an integral part of the democratic coalition, and the Democrats, you know, turned away from them more and more. It felt like from a white working class uh, perspective over the years. Um, and and you know, it's it's important to state that Republicans have not necessarily embraced white working class people either. Right. Right. It's really only now with Donald Trump, who's been the first mainstream politician to actively seek out their votes in a more deliberate way for the first time in about 40 years. Mm. You know, for for Democrats, white working class people have been problematic because of that nationalism that we talked about in the earlier segment, Um, Mm. because it can sometimes create problems for the other constituencies that they have in their voting bloc. But for Republicans, white working-class people's protectionism, their isolationism in foreign policy, their protectionist economics, really don't jive very well with the, the Republican establishment's ideas about being very interventionist and, you know, open uh, free trade. So really, neither party has exactly wholeheartedly embraced white working-class folks for a very long time.
2: And I guess that's so. That's why the, I mean, the surprise uh, election results came from the Midwest, where the predominance of white working class reside, I guess.
5: It's not that that's where they're predominant, because there are a lot of white working class people in the South and in the Plains and in in, in Big Sky country, too. It's just that the South, the Plains and Big Sky were pretty reliably Republican.
2: Republican already. Yeah,
5: Exactly. Whereas in the Rust Belt, those were relatively reliably Democratic for a very, very long period of time. And so what's Stung the Democrats so badly is that states that they really relied upon turned, and mm. that's what really sent this message. And so, you know, I don't think um, I don't I don't think that Democrats have any illusion of you know recruiting folks from the American South or the Great Plains into the party because those places are just so solidly red right now. Mm. But. You know, places like Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, Montana, and places like in the Rust Belt, like Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, those are are all states that Democrats think that they have a lot to offer to. And they've somehow lost their way in their appeal to white working class people in those regions. Now is – oh, go ahead. Keep going. Well, the other thing I was going to add is that Politics is really all about constituencies so right. you know while we don't we don't like to acknowledge all these boundaries that we talk, talked about earlier people are motivated by with a lot of block voting you know uh, doctors vote the same way right. um you know uh, Cubans vote the same way uh, you know maybe you, you, you think the uh, unions vote the same way you know the idea that we we have these blocks and sometimes those blocks are are more ethnic or religious and sometimes they're more occupational you know in nature yeah and so and and so that's just american politics and it really is going to stay that way particularly as long as we have a campaign finance system uh the way it is because these blocks because people then associate themselves together in order to donate money to
4: candidates. oh yeah
5: and that's and that's a really a, an underlying reason why we have these 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 constituencies, as you described. And I guess they
2: can move them together too, right? I mean, it's easier to move your block of doctors than it might be just a bunch of you know, you to be know, unorganized. right? Yeah. yeah, we can organize them. We can talk talk about um, because one of the questions is simply: so is this just racism? um is it yeah, you know, uh, is is there a blowback now in fact one of the van jones or somebody right at when donald trump was elected called this the white like what did he call it the white revolt or whatever it was is, is this just is this just racism
5: well first off you know, just because white working class people are motivated doesn't necessarily mean it's racist right um but i think that there have been undertones uh, of racism involved because well, first off, Donald Trump's campaign flirted with a lot of racist innuendo. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he attacked a number of groups. Uh, you know, he, he castigated the judge in Indiana for being Mexican. He said he was going to ban Muslims, which is effectively what he's doing right now. Um, you know, the, he identified a number of constituencies and, and said things that could be construed as bigoted. And many people construed support for Donald Trump from average folks as, as racist because Donald Trump himself was saying things that could be construed as racist. But that's not necessarily fair, you know, because, you know, voters don't necessarily agree with everything their candidate has to say. And so it's far more complicated than that. But for me, what the real issue is, Matt, is it's not whether or not people are racist. It's about why racism has ceased to be the important concept that it really was created to be. Racism originally, It's such an important idea in our society because it sensitizes all of us Mm. to the prejudice that we have inside of our minds. And we're all prejudiced in different ways. That's how the mind works. We prejudge. It's a a shortcut to judgment. But it makes us question whether we're being fair in our prejudgment and whether we're creating double standards and whether we're we're not uh, or whether we're being disrespectful. And so racism has a really important role as a concept in our lives. The problem is that many people have used racism as a label to dismiss people or invalidate what they're saying, and they'll call people racist as a way of shutting them down. And for many white working-class people, that's how they view the word racism. They Mm. see it as a tool to silence them. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes the things that my white (laughs) working-class subjects said to me when I was in the field – they were pretty racist. They're pretty racist, you know? I mean, and
2: they should be shut you know, down. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
5: Well, you know, okay. well,
2: you should that's be hearing them, but
5: should, should they be shut down? And, and from my perspective, I think it's important that we listen to each other, even if we really don't like yeah. what other people say. I think it's important that we listen because that's what a good society does: is it brings us together and forces us to to, come to confront one another. But instead, when we do shut people down, even if they're saying something terrible, even if they're saying something that we think is really just abominable. It's important that we listen and engage in those conversations so that they feel like their opinion matters. And then we can have a dialogue about how we can come together.
2: Hmm. Yeah, what the solutions need to be. Exactly. Because, uh, too, if not, you just – it seems like you put a lid on this, and it's just going to create more energy, right? And so – that's why right now, other now it's it's reversing, and others are feeling disenfranchised, and you see all of this energy coming out, and the need to, to you know, to meet and to gather and to to fight against it. What what do we do going forward, Justin? I mean, this is in your book. I think it's 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 just it's exactly the timing is incredible. I mean, and you were ahead of the wave um, to understand what's going on. But how do we as a as a population? get through this?
5: Well, I think that we need to be um, very good listeners to each other and we need to not prejudge one another in the way that I just discussed. I think we need to engage in more dialogue because as you're talking about, when we shut people down, we, we build up those barriers around ourselves and we put ourselves into these silos where we don't listen to other people who say things we don't like or who don't look like us or have lifestyles like us. And that's really the breakdown of society and the Internet in particular, Matt, allows us to reinforce the walls of those silos because the Internet feeds us information that we are expected to like based on various algorithms that websites contain. Right. And so it allows us to reinforce those walls. And, And what we really need to be doing is breaking down those walls. But I think that the other challenge that we're confronted by is one of critical thinking. You know, I think that you know Donald Trump and his administration came in um, on a wave of support. He didn't have a majority of the of the of the popular vote, um, but he felt emboldened by this revolution that I mentioned. Uh, in that he, you know, was an underdog, and that he has uh, 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 stimulated and motivated this new group of of support for himself. However, I think that we all need to be very critical thinkers about the the actions that he's taking, whether that reflects what the American public wanted because a lot of people supported Donald Trump um, not because they actually wanted to see a Muslim ban, not because they want to vilify Mexicans and and, and all Latino immigrants, and and not because they really want to divide their country, but because they want to get their country back on track economically Mm. and make sure that the economy works for everyone and not just the folks at the top, and that we don't have this sort of segmented Recovery that's lumpy where certain people are recovering and certain people aren't right and so far while in office Donald Trump has been focusing so much more on Social issues that really divide our country up that create wedges and places into those silos Rather than focusing on what I think is really what got him in there and that's what the promises that he made to bring white working-class people and working class people more broadly back into the fold economically to make their lives more stable. But you know, banning immigrants and you know and and making lives hard life harder for immigrants doesn't make life easier for the rest of us. Right. And I think that's where we have to be critical thinkers.
2: That's great. And it doesn't necessarily change the economics and um, uh, and 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 again, the solutions are the crazy thing, but we also can't just keep using we can't keep using division as the means, the tool to, to create political gain. It just, it's dangerous. I think it's so dangerous. Dr. Justin Guest, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for your, your great insight. The book, The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in the Age of Immigration and Inequality. Isn't it just so much more than Trump? It's, it's a movement and when he says it's a movement he created, he didn't create it. He's just has taken advantage of it now. Um, but folks, it's America, and along with, by the way, the diversity in every other area that uh, that we have. So we got to figure a way to come together. We will take a break. Come back and wrap up our number one of the show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Boy, we've got to listen more, our expert tells us. We've got to dialogue more and understand more what's going on. Um, This idea that people for many, many years felt disenfranchised. They felt like their opinions weren't being heard. Their religious views were being ignored. And, you know, by the way, what led up to that was many, many years of other minorities not having their values understood. In the end, what does it take to unify us? What will it take to bring us all together, really? Do we need something that's bigger than all of our differences to bring us together? Do we need a major event? What is it? Or can we find a way to, to not be so divisive? And political is one thing, but do you as a neighbor respect and can you honor people around you that are different? Can you still see the good in them? Can you still be a good Samaritan and take care of your neighbor even if they're a different minority or a different, you know, sexual orientation? That's what I think being Christ likes about. We'll take a break, my friends, and come back. This is the Matt Townsend show helping you see and be the good in the world. Stick with us.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at
1: DrMattShow.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, uh, joined, of course, by Jeffrey Simpson and Terry South. Today we are talking about uh, so many things, some of which actually induce a lot of anxiety. Yes. So I uh, thought this topic was timely. Perfect timing. Donald Trump um, announces his new Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, Judge Neil Gorsuch, who's on the Federal Court of Appeals. And um, great resume. Mm. Wow. Incredible resume, including Columbia, Harvard, Oxford, Oxford yeah,
0: the trifecta.
2: But uh, he's apparently also a terrible guy.
0: Yeah,
3: according to the – Evil spawn
2: of darkness according to who you talk to.
0: I heard someone call him a
2: uh, judicial extremist this morning. He is – what he is, he is of the ilk of uh, uh, Antonin Scalia who was like very supposed purist to simply the interpretation of what the constitution and its founders said. Not interpreting how
0: it would apply today even. But unlike Scalia, he's not the kind of guy that walks into a place looking for a fight just because he's bored. Scalia liked to fight. Scalia liked to
2: fight. But one thing they say that he is alike with Scalia is humor Mm. and his writing. They say when he writes a a judgment or whatever, it's very understandable. It's very – and even at times funny.
0: All right. There you go.
2: Which it seems like a great thing. We need to be able to laugh at our our Supreme Court. No, we don't. Um, It's uh, all that going on. And so we'll talk a little bit about that in the news headlines. Also, we will get to empty news, we call it, Matt Townsend News. Uh, And today, because it's February 1st, we think it's important that we prepare everybody for Valentine's Day. Oh, right. It's, you know, it's only two weeks away.
7: Mm.
2: But if you're not careful, you'll mess it up. And you do not want to mess up Valentine's Day or you will pay for it. All the way through Labor Day. Right? Sure. And that's coming from the Love Doctor. So we'll get to that, telling you a story about if you want to and you live near a Waffle House... Waffle House. You can set up a romantic candlelight dinner with your missus.
0: Get your reservation in now. Mm-hmm.
2: We'll get to that in a minute. Also, we will be... Um, uh, talking with our guest about anxiety. Don't let anxiety run your life. So, if you're suffering from anxiety, you know, we'll give you some tools and ideas on how to handle that and maybe tone it down a little bit so it's not changing how you play the game. And also, a little bit later, we'll talk with uh, one of our producers, McKenna Baus, about um, technology. Should we use technology to help our seniors? And, and help aid their life and their – or are we just kind of neglecting them and then sending a robot to do our job?
0: Yeah. It's like with your kids when you turn the toy on and it starts spinning in a circle and you walk out of the room.
2: Well, we've been doing that with seniors with that little button that they can push when they've fallen and they can't get up. Right. We've been neglecting them that way for years.
3: I think there's certain technology, though, that they're just not going to you – know, they're not going to pay attention. They're not going <laughs> to adopt yeah. new practices. Right. No, I agree. Just like, like I'm not going to start an Instagram account.
2: You know, I can't see grandma and grandpa playing with a digital drum set. I can't see it. They could. I mean, they could. I just yeah. don't think it's going to be technology they're going to pick up. All right. But not to, you know, maybe they will. But first, before we get to all that excitement, let's get to the news with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country?
0: A lot of, a lot of Senate confirmation news happening. Yesterday, Democrats on the Senate Finance Committee boycotted the confirmation votes for President Trump's health secretary nominee, Representative Tom Price, and his Treasury secretary nominee, Steve Munchen. The votes were slated for 10 a.m. Tuesday, but at that time, only Republicans on the Senate committee showed up. While Republicans sat inside, Democrats oh. were huddled outside in the hallway. They didn't get the memo. They were outlining their gripes with the selection. Apparently, the media was also outside, because that's where people were talking, the Democrats, so they were right. out there talking. Finance Committee Chairman Senator Orrin Hatch said, I can't understand why senators who know what we're going to have the... Uh, these two people go through can't support the committee he added that he was very disappointed on the boy here here's a word hatch with some more
2: well they are idiots anybody would do something like that wow uh, it's, it's just a complete breach of uh, decorum it's a complete breach of committee rules it's a complete breach of uh, of just getting along around here boy the democrats <laughs>
0: so he goes they're they are idiots they're not playing by the rules so is they the the question that that gets that response is are the democrats idiots and he responds, yes, they are idiots. I don't know. It was on CNN. It was yeah. interesting. This morning, Republicans on the Senate Finance Committee. Now, now the picture is amazing because they separate the room directly down the middle. Right. The chairman sits in the middle. And then around this side of the circles, all Republicans. Around the other side of the circle, all Democrats.
4: Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So half the room is empty. Right? Yeah. Chairman and then all, all the way around the other side of the table is all the Republicans with their staffers sitting behind them. The, 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 who, the whoever's being interviewed is sitting at this table. The room otherwise is completely empty because the Crazy. Democrats did not even show up. So this morning, Republicans on the Senate Finance Committee advanced President Trump's nominee for Treasury, Steve Munchen, and, Treasury, and uh, nominee oh, for Health Without and Humanity. Without a
2: vote from the – Tom
0: Price, no Democrats in the room on Wednesday. To do so required Orrin Hatch to suspend the committee rules, which normally would require a quorum of at least one Democrat in the room to vote. Oh, interesting!
2: So he suspended yeah. the rules. What, what else are you supposed to do?
0: They're just pushing them on through. See, so so
2: th- now the Democrats are playing the role of kind of obstructionist, yeah. which is what the Republicans mastered for eight years.
0: That's really interesting.
2: I think they want Scrooge as their Secretary of
3: the Treasury, but <laughs> Scrooge yeah.
2: post uh, the ghosts.
3: Yeah, that's hard. Where he just gives
2: it all away. Yeah. The ghosts are everywhere now.
0: Also, in other news, 47 people were arrested outside of Senator Orrin Hatch's office Tuesday during a protest against changes to the nation's health care law and against President Trump's travel ban. Why, why Why outside of his door? I don't know. Like they couldn't find another door? I, they just sat in his hallway, 47 people. Wow. So the, they had to get him out. Elaine Chao will be the next Secretary of Transportation after the Senate resoundingly confirmed her Tuesday 93 to six. No one's messing with Mitch McConnell's wife. Right, except for, like, uh, Elizabeth Warren and a yeah. few others that, that yeah. jumped in there to stop that one. Uh, in spite of President Trump's executive order temporarily halting American refugee program, 80, 872 refugees will uh, still arrive in the U.S. this week. Acting Commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Agency said Tuesday that the U.S. government has granted waivers in cases where refugees were ready for travel and stopping them will cause undue hardship. Hmm. So, despite that, 872 will arrive in the country.
2: Wow. So and, it's a partial ban. Yeah. I mean, eight, and they really have only banned a tiny, one, less than a quarter of 1%. Right. They reported. Out of 300,000. 109,
0: were but it's actually more like 700 and something. So 700
2: and something. Yeah. yeah. So.
0: Out of 300,000, those are pretty good numbers. Whatever the numbers are. And finally, Johnny Depp. Yes you heard about him? I've
2: heard a little bit lately.
0: Uh, he spent more than $3 million on a cannon to blast Hunter S. Thompson's ashes over Aspen, Colorado. Wow. Is this the author? No, Johnny Depp. No, yeah, no. Yeah, no, no. Hunter S. Thompson, yeah. the author. Yeah. yeah when yeah. he died, Johnny Depp took his ashes, put it in a cannon he made specially that cost $3 million just to shoot his ashes. <laughs> you know, now, it's... going on, there's more. The, uh, he spent $30,000 a month on expensive wines. Oh, wow. Uh, and apparently just wasted most of his money. This is a lawsuit from his uh, uh, former managers. The lawsuit filed as a countersuit to Depp's $25 million suit against the management group. Claims that Depp lived uh, uh, lived an ultra-extravagant uh, lifestyle that he couldn't really afford. He spent, uh, inclu- what, $75 million on 14 different homes around the world, $18 million on a 150-foot yacht, $10 million on support... Uh, for family and friends. Holy and it cow. just goes on that he spent – it was like a $2 million a yeah. month lifestyle. Average. Right. Which is why there's so many Pirates of the Caribbean movies.
3: You know, it's funny because his latest Hunter S. Thompson adaptation, uh, I don't even think made that much. No.
2: Total. Yeah. He didn't even pay for the ash shooter. <laughs> I mean, didn't even make that much. What, you couldn't fight. just hire, an, hire a helicopter, right. pay $1,000, circle Aspen, and drop ashes. Oh, a cannon.
3: I think this is just an indicator that he's bored out of his mind. I think he's a creative
2: artist, right? He is kind of a weirdo. He fits the perfect mold of the creative
0: artist. And no concept of budget.
2: But when you also think what you could do, not like, let's say none of it would go to charity, okay? Let's not pretend like we're nice like that. But if you had $75 million, you know. 14 houses. Yeah, I wouldn't be buying a cannon to shoot a dead ash wad out of (laughs) that's just oh well i found that not to
0: judge so you know you go to court and all that stuff comes out oh man holy cow
2: just thirty thousand dollars a month in wine a small country could
0: have operated very well on that budget
2: see my wife thinks that's my diet coke budget could
0: be it's not see half that
3: why aren't democrats getting upset at him (laughs) for all the money he's wasting
2: well because he's probably donated a lot
3: Two
4: Democrats. Mm. Mm.
0: I don't know. They're pretty politically
4: active. Mm.
0: He lives in France. Ah, that explains it. Yeah. That explains it. Well, that's one of his 14 residences. Oh, right.
2: That's a lot of (laughs) – especially – oh, boy.
3: Plus, he's got alimony too, doesn't he? He's got to.
0: I don't know what the – there was a recent separation that was pretty hostile, I read. But
2: really, when you think of a pirate, he's the pirate. Yeah. Okay, now that I mean, makes more sense. Don't you think? I mean this is he's living a pirate life. He's acting like Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Running around. Too much rum. Yeah. He's why in ports. Is... He's buying a house buy a house in every port.
1: But why is the rum gone? <laughs> Sebi. Um you guys
2: ready for Valentine's Day?
0: Yeah, my wife doesn't seem to care about it. Okay,
2: Valentine's remember, Day. Jeffrey, I think, is coming. To my date night.
4: Mm.
0: uh Oh, oh, here we go. There's reservation. I hear it. Honestly, you know, if I can get my my, oh. I just found
3: out my parents are going to be in town oh, that bring weekend. Wow. I'll have them.
2: Maybe I'll have them babysit or bring them.
3: My kids too.
2: No, don't bring your children. Yeah, maybe we I'll have my girls. parents babysit. Yeah, I'm telling mm. you, it will change your life. We're talking about how to get selfishness out of your marriage. Your wife called. She said, "Please get him to go." She even said she'll watch the kids. <laughs> no, really. Uh, you're invited. Um, but And you're not going because you don't want to work on your marriage. Instead, you want to just...
0: Well, I, I, I get to hear you every day. No, but you don't hear what I talk about and there. It would be another, what, two hours? How long is it?
2: Probably two hours, two and a half to get there. And... On a Saturday? Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, but it's, it's different because you actually would talk to your wife...
0: I talk to her all the time.
2: That's not what she said. She said. We have wonderful conversations. Okay, then I know what. Let me give you another idea. Oh, okay, go ahead. If you don't want to go to the greatest event on earth,
0: then instead. <laughs> at a junior high near you. Uh, it's actually at high school. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Then instead, You've upgraded
2: this year. We, we always do it at high schools. <laughs> uh, celebrate your love with a candlelight Valentine's Day dinner at Waffle House. Waffle House. If you're looking to share romance and a romantic meal and save a few bucks on the day, uh, Waffle House might be the place for you. On February uh, 14th, Waffle House employees will dim the lights. They will light a few candles and serve up heart-shaped waffles for the love-struck couples. Valentine's Day event has been a Waffle House tradition for 10 years as couples celebrate their love with a heaping plate of hash browns or a T-bone steak with their eggs. Ooh. The reservation-only event is available at restaurants in 16 states, so make sure you make reservations. Have you ever
3: heard those words going into a Waffle House?
2: No. Uh, excuse me, do you have a reservation? No, but I've heard somebody say I have some reservations about going into this place. <laughs> I've heard that one, but now sadly in Utah we don't have a Waffle House, no. but we do have our own waffle chain, and it happens to be one of our sponsors. So oh, we nice. wanted to let us, we wanted everybody to hear from our sponsor. A waffle
1: chain. Darling, I remember bringing you to this restaurant on our very first date. And now that we're celebrating our two year anniversary, I wanted to bring you back and share this poem I wrote for you. <clears throat> Your eyes beam brighter than a thousand suns, the light of which never dies, the pools of which never run dry. Your sweet embrace feels heavenly, and there's no place I'd rather be. Enveloped by perfection, with inflections of... Welcome to the awful waffle. Gladys, you still work here? You still eat here? Ugh, Uh, what do you want? Gladys, we'll take two Texas plaid piles, a bucket of pickle brine swine, two hashed potato platers, and a gallon of your pulpiest O.J. Coming right up in two shakes of a pig's tail. Oh, good old Gladys... Some things never change. Like my love for you, my widow wummy waffle. I love you too, buttercakes. <laughs> oh, darling. The awful waffle. Serving you the same breakfast from when they opened their doors twenty years ago. Literally. Hmm.
2: That sounds like a great place. The awful waffle. It's the same breakfast. Yeah. Literally. As twenty years ago. Boy, those were some fun. I love it when uh, when they have really fun names for their food. Like what what do they call the the pork or the the,
3: the plaid piles? Yeah, the
2: plaid piles. Um, they had
3: a bucket of uh, swine brine or mm. brine swine. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, pickle no pickle brine swine. Mmm. And then the sweet or the hash hash potato plater.
2: Ooh, yeah. So instead of platter, it's plater. Yeah, I'd get that. Yeah, I'd get that. Or um, sometimes when I go to another place, I get moons over my hammy. Denny's? Oh, don't name names. I said Danny's? Yeah, Danny's. Moons over my hammy. Um, isn't love great? And nothing says love more than saying it over, you know, a platter of grits. Mm-hmm. Romantic. Uh, We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about anxiety. If you have it, if you have just even a bit of it, is it changing the way you live? Well, get ready, folks. The director of the Yale Center for Anxiety and Mood Disorders is going to be talking to us about how to not let anxiety run your life. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Having nerves before asking your boss uh, for a raise or experiencing butterflies before giving a speech, it's all normal behavior, right? You should be a little nervous, but excessive anxiety can change the way people live their lives. And our next guest wrote a book about how to take back control of your life. The book is called Don't Let Your Anxiety Run Your Life, and we're joined by the author, Dr. Dave Klemanski, who's the director of the Yale Center for Anxiety and Mood Disorders and a lecturer of psychology and and psychiatry. Dr. Klemanski, thank you so much for being with us today.
6: Yes. Hi. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity
2: to speak about the book. You bet. Now, anxiety, I mean, we hear the term all the time, and part of anxiety or anxiousness it's just, it's normal, right? So, when does when anxiety become a problem?
6: Absolutely. Anxiety is normal. And I think that's one of the things that we wanted to try and convey in the book is that, you know, there is a, there is a good side to anxiety. It helps us sort of prepare for the future, helps us do well at the things that we want to do well with. Um, when it becomes problematic is when it becomes excessive, irrational, um, where it really sorts, starts to create dysfunction in your life. And so when you feel like you can't really cope or you can't do the things that you used to do because the anxiety is interfering so much, that's when it really becomes problematic. And it's time to think about how to really start solving that problem, either working with a therapist or someone you know that's, that's experienced treating anxiety or ways to sort of start to change the behaviors in your life so that you're not feeling so anxious and it's getting in your way. Mm.
2: And it's, do you sense, because I don't know what it is in my practice, because I don't do Like psychotherapy, I do more coaching, skill based relationship stuff Um, is but I see more and more times of uh, anxiety kicking in. Is there an uptick in it? Are we seeing more anxious people today?
6: Absolutely. I mean, I think the answer to that, to be very clear, is sort of yes and no. You know, anxiety is the most common class of disorders that we have in the psychiatric um, sort of disorders that we look at. You know, depression sort of comes in a close second. But there's a, there's a class of disorders known as anxiety disorders, and there's several in there. Um, and so we do see that. That's a very prominent sort of concern that a lot of people have today. In terms of it sort of an uptick, I think that we live in, in sort of a modern world where we have to connect faster, sort of meet goals. We have, you know, different goals where we have to be successful, um, want to sort of connect with as many people as possible. Possible. We have the pressure of sort of being, uh, having an online personality, those kinds of things. So I think that makes people more anxious. But the other thing that we are seeing is sort of a real increase um, in anxiety diagnoses in kids and, and how kids are sort of having more pressure uh, to do more adult-type things while you know, at that young age. So we are seeing some increases in kids, and I think that's trickling over into the adolescent years and then even into becoming young adults. Um, you know we're starting to see anxiety increase in that way.
2: And, and I, guess, I guess that's a big part of your book is if you're not careful or even if it goes undiagnosed, you end up altering your approach to life because of your anxiousness.
6: Yes, absolutely. You know, a lot of people with anxiety, knowingly or unknowingly, they start to develop bad habits, you know, like worrying about things too much or sort of avoiding things too much over time. And those are all sort of hallmark symptoms of anxiety. And so when those happen, people do sort of, these habits infiltrate their lives. They start to uh, take on sort of their personality in some ways. And what really happens is that when people give in to those habits, it, it becomes problematic and they start to live in sort of a smaller bubble every time they start to avoid something that makes them anxious or every time they mm. start to think negatively about it. And as that bubble gets smaller and smaller, they become less functional. And as they become less functional, that's when anxiety really becomes problematic and, and that's where they probably can use some help to manage it because it can be incredibly difficult, incredibly debilitating and um, it's just one of those things that it's not easy to go alone so you might as well get someone that you can help, help you out, with it's through a book, self-help book like the one that I wrote uh, with my co-author or, um, you know, seeing someone in a coaching setting like yourself or
2: a therapist. Yeah. Is it, um, I have an interesting example of it, of a person I was working with, very smart student, got a bachelor's degree, lived in an apartment, had roommates. Um, Then after the bachelor's degree, he really wanted to go away to grad school, got accepted to two or three places. But really, in the end, didn't have the nerve to leave. So so he stayed uh, and even said, yeah, I I wanted to go. I wanted to keep progressing in my career. Um, Stayed, got a master's degree at the same school, um, then applied to other grad schools and got accepted to great schools, um, but then didn't want to leave and ended up staying in the same apartment with Three of the four same guys for this entire time. And he was the only one that was actually getting education. But he was and in the end, it was his worry. It was his anxiety of moving on of letting stuff go that and but he could he could mask it with, you know, educational attainment. Right. But not necessarily progressing, which in my mind would still induce more and more anxiety
6: absolutely over time that anxiety absolutely builds over time and you know you can be very functional with anxiety, yeah. like like this example that you're talking about but you know it can still hold you back in really important ways and when someone's sort of giving up something like you know going to a different grad school that might be a better fit for them or you know might help further their career that that's where it's becoming problematic for that person it's not necessarily bad it's not always easy to recognize in moment, right. but it's something that they want to address if you know if they feel like they're being held back
0: do over we, time. do
2: we know what causes anxiety? I mean, I know the biological response is kind of fight or flight, right? It's survival. But what is – what's the actual cause? Why do some people obsess maybe or get excessively worried and anxious versus others that don't?
6: Sure, yeah. You know, I think it, that's kind of a loaded question, so I'll do my
2: yeah. best
4: to yeah. answer
6: it. Um, you know, I, there's a few causes to anxiety. And so when we think about it, we really try to break it down to psychological causes, biological causes, environmental causes. And usually it's a combination of all three of those. So when we're thinking biology, maybe there's some brain chemical that, that is sort of a little bit off a neurotransmitter that's not sort of working as effectively in someone's brain. That might be an issue. And that we're not, you know, I don't want to scare people and say, hey, your brain's not working right. But, you know, sometimes we have different chemicals that sort of work better or not in our brains. Um, different structures of our brain sort of make us more or less prone to being anxiety. Certainly genetics, you know, we get passed down from our Mm. parents. Sometimes we can't even help it. You know, it's just something that's going to be sort of our, our makeup based on genetics. But often um, we see, you know, the environment causes people to feel anxious through, you know, learned conditioning, classical conditioning, those types of things where people learn in their environment to be afraid of things or to avoid things that made them anxious. And after a while, you know, you might develop a habit as a kid to say, if you're claustrophobic, I'm not going to fly, I'm not going to do things like uh, be in small and enclosed places. And as you get older and older and older, you start to become a little bit more rigid about what you will and will not do, and that habit really intensifies and really leads to. Sort Sort of a very difficult uh, sense of anxiety for people over time. Mm. So it's really a mix of sort of the environment, you know, genes, genetics, biology, those kinds of things, and also just sort of psychological makeup, what people are vulnerable to over their lifetime.
2: And there, and there is help. I mean, this yeah. isn't a death sentence.
6: Absolutely not. It's it's the great thing about anxiety is it's very well researched over time. So you know people have been studying this for hundreds of years, uh, looking at how we can help people with anxiety. And there's some really great treatments. And that's one of the things that we wanted to try and um, you know put forth in our book is that there's some really great treatments out there that can. This book can serve as an adjunct to, or you know can help mm. possibly get people into it. So there's a there's a great therapy known as cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. It's evidence based, which means scientists have been studying it, researching how well it works for different disorders, and it's really really a helpful therapy for. People people. people with anxiety. I'm not saying it's going to cure, but it's going to help people really reduce their symptoms in meaningful ways and and help them sort of get a significant reduction in in sort of the anxiety feelings that they're having.
2: And so cognitive behavioral is using your thinking, right? Adjusting your thinking to adjust your behavior.
6: Right, exactly. So we're helping people examine the way that they think and what those thoughts do. So if you, you know, if you have a negative thought about something that makes you anxious, we want to help you change that thought so that later on, you know, it's not going to lead to a sort of an avoidant behavior or it's not going to lead to your body being ramped up with all these physical symptoms of anxiety um, or even sort of help get rid of some of the negative emotions that go along with it. So it's exactly right. It's, it's sort of pinpointing the way that people think and how that will change their behavior, their thoughts and their emotions.
2: <laughs> Fascinating yeah. um, also I guess as, as we're talking about this there um, there is there's hope there's there's solutions there's tools and and you've got to recognize it so if we were looking at the at the, at the actual signs that we're suffering from anxiety, many times people will come in my office and I see their I see the signs, but they don't see them in, until I ask them. I go, "Do you think you're anxious?" And a lot of times they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've got a lot of anxiety," and mm-hmm. and then so what what should they be looking for that would be some of the telltale signs?
6: Yes, absolutely. So one of the one of the sort of most telltale signs that, that I often see is that people are sort of worrying without even thinking about it. So they tend to worry about something very bad happening in the future or sort of worrying about outcomes that they just don't know or they can't predict really what it's going to be. So it's sort of these negative worries that they have about um, something that might happen and isn't necessarily going to happen but just might happen. We also see people with very specific kinds of emotions. So if there's a lot of nervousness, a lot of fear, a lot of anger going on, if you have really intense sort of emotions like the ones I just uh, discussed, you know, that's, what, that's going to sort of maybe signal that you might be dealing with some anxiety over time. Hmm. And also if you find that yourself that you're avoiding a lot of things over time, so specific behaviors that you avoid, You know things that make you anxious in life. You know even as simple as if you like to, you'd rather email than make a phone call, for example, because being on the phone is is too anxiety provoking. That that's just one example of avoidance. But if you see yourself doing that with a lot of things, pretty consistently over time, Hmm. that's also another good example or a good sign that that anxiety might be troubling you. Um, And then the final sort of part of it is we look for people who explain that they might have a lot of physical symptoms. So if you just sort of feel keyed up or on edge or jittery, you know, a lot of the time. Um, restless over th- throughout your days, throughout your weeks. Um, that's usually a good sign that you're sort of probably dealing with some anxiety. It could be something else too, so that's why it's good to speak with someone. But those are usually the the typical signs.
4: Yeah, like I
2: that. guess your ability, your inability to turn your your head off, your thinking off. You you can't sleep. You're kind con- you're constantly spinning with thoughts. I mean, that's right. Those are some tells. Talk about because um, there is a there's a correlation I, I hear between then the um, between anxiety and depression that. And how, how do how do they work together?
6: Absolutely. So you know one of the things that we see in children especially is that they typically will start out with an anxiety disorder and then it can go on to lead to, to be depression. So we see that there's sort of a temporal effect where anxiety usually comes first for people and then depression can come later. Sometimes it can be a response. So depression can be a response to anxiety. After a long time of being anxious without sort of um, having any intervention or even really sort of dealing with it in a meaningful way, we find that people can sometimes sort of have a response of being depressed about it, sort of getting sad, low mood, those kinds of things. So we know that anxiety can can lead to depression. I wouldn't go as far to say it causes it, but it certainly yeah. can lead to it. Um, the other thing is that those two disorders are sort of highly comorbid, which means that they sort of co-occur together for a lot of people. So. If you're vulnerable to having anxiety, you might be vulnerable to having depression. Again, that could have a lot to do with the brain chemicals that people have, like serotonin as a neurotransmitter. And maybe there's some, you know, it it may not be working as well. You may not have enough. And there there are certain medications that can be very helpful for helping um, regulate that a little bit better. But they often sort of co-occur because of these biological and environmental reasons. Mm. Um, and so it's good. It's, it's really good for people with anxiety to talk about with their doctors, with their friends. You know, do you see signs of depression in me? You know, or if they can really sort of have some introspection and think about how's their mood been in the last few weeks, last few months, those kinds of things. Yeah. That will really help them to sort of parse out, you know, are they experiencing both? Could they use some help for both? Or is it just sort of more anxiety or more depression?
2: Right. Um, you know, that's... Uh... It's a, it's a powerful thing when I think about how my clients and, and once that once it's almost like you can name it as what it is and then they can go deal with it, um, yeah. it all of a sudden it's not as big of a monster. It, it's not this cloud. It, it all, it's something that they can take on.
6: Absolutely. A lot of the people that we work with, you know, as soon as we can name it for them, just like you said, it's it's sort of it's it's a great feeling for them because they realize that they're not alone in the struggle. That other people have experienced what they're experiencing. That there's some good treatments that we can offer for it. So we can give them hope through through the ways that we talk about how they can combat their anxiety, and it normalizes it a bit for them. And, yeah. and that's an important process. It's part of you know what we should be doing in therapy is helping people realize that anxiety is a very normal experience. We should welcome it at times, but. When it gets to be too much,
2: we should we should let it go. Right, right. Good stuff. Let's take a break. We'll come back more with David Klemanski, Doctor David Klemanski, uh, from the author of the book "Don't Let Your Anxiety Run Your Life." He's also um, helping us understand more about how to how to fix it, how to improve it. When we come back, we'll be talking solutions for uh, taking back some of your emotional um, power. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Dr. David Klemanski, author of the book Don't Let Your Anxiety Run Your Life. He's also the director of the Yale Center for Anxiety and Mood Disorders and a lecturer um, on the topic in psychology and psychiatry. He's walking us through uh, anxiety and the impact it has. Again, a fairly common issue um, that, in fact, all of us at some point or another should have a moment of anxiety, right? If I asked you to get up in front of a 1,000 people, normally that, that should make you nervous. And that nervousness could prove to be very healthy for you. Am I getting that accurate, David? Yes, you are. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, if you're not nervous, anxious, anxious. yeah, yes, you got other problems, right?
6: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not, not all the same things will make all of us nervous. Some people will be great at giving a speech in front of a thousand people. Others might get nervous at a phone call, but that's exactly right. We should be nervous about something in life. It sort of propels us to do better, to be better.
2: Talk about a little bit um, what you're doing at, at Yale Center for Anxiety and Mood Disorders. How does What are you taking out of that and, and how are you implementing it in your book?
6: Absolutely. So one of the things that we, we do at the clinic is really we try to figure out, you know, the people's experience of anxiety and how we can best help them. So that happens through research and sort of we use our clinical work uh, with patients or so our, our interactions with patients to really figure out, you know, what types of things should we be researching. So we use our, our work to inform our research. And in our research, we do lots of studies about how people regulate their emotions, how they can use mindfulness, which is a topic of the book, um, to sort of combat some of the some of the anxiety symptoms that they might have over time. And so we really use that all that all those experiences to put together really great research studies that that will hopefully inform our field of science about how to help people with anxiety the best we can.
2: And what I think is amazing because. We're hearing about mindfulness all over, and you know I can get anyone from Yale to come on and talk about it to um, to a you know a meditation teacher at my local gym. But the reality is, mindfulness and it's taken over. But it it really is it's getting present, right? There's something about anxiety that it it kind of removes us from the now and puts right. us somewhere into our mind that induces this this fret.
6: Exactly. Yeah. You know, when I think of anxiety, I think of it sort of hijacking our brain in some ways, you know, it puts us into a fret, like you said it really sort of adds a whole new dimension to the way that we function. Sometimes it doesn't help us pay attention or whatever it might be. Mindfulness is sort of counteracting that in, in many ways and trying to help people be more present in the moment. So learning to purposely pay attention to the present moment without judgment um, and with a strong awareness of what you're doing so that, you know, instead of being on autopilot, you can actually sort of do things in a very purposeful way and something that's meaningful to helping you combat your symptoms.
4: Mm.
2: So what are some ways that we can be more mindful and, and, and start taking on, anxiety if we suffer from it.
6: Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that we try to do in the book is give people lots of, uh, lots of practices to be more mindful throughout their day. Um, so if, that, if that's an interest of people, you know, there's, there's lots of great mindfulness books. I'd say check out any of them. Our book will specifically help sort of work with that with anxiety. But the, the main idea behind mindfulness is to really learn to practice to become mindful. So one of, the, one of the examples that we use in the book is it's a lot like a puppy. When you first get a new puppy, you want to teach him how to walk down the sidewalk, you know, in a really sort of well-behaved way. But the puppy wants a small if everything, wants to run in circles, wants to play, wants to do everything but walk, you know, and and when he's first learning. Our minds are a lot like that until we actually train them to be more mindful. So our minds want to do all kinds of things. They want to notice that itch that we have in our body. They want to sort of notice all the 15 things that we have to do during the day or sort of focus on the things that we regret from the past You know, when it's least helpful. And so we want to train our mind to really be more present in the actual moment that we're doing. One way to do that to answer your question more directly is to really just take a few minutes out of our day every day and practice being mindful. One of the very first practices that people can use is just take a minute or two and just observe every time you breathe in and out. And sort of if you pay attention to your breath, you'll notice that your mind might want to wander, might want to think about other things, but try and bring your mind gently back to sort of paying attention to your breath. And that's going to slowly, slowly train people over time, over a lot of practice to really sort of start to pay attention to the moment. That'll eventually translate to when you're feeling anxious, how you can bring your mind back online pretty quickly and sort of counteract your negative thoughts that you're having, counteract some of the negative emotions that you're having, or even make you behave in a way that, you know, might be helpful rather than avoidant, for example, mm. over time.
2: It's um, my father-in-law is a cardiologist. And as I was talking to him one day about anxiety and how to manage it, he, he brought up a really interesting point. And this is just because clinically he's coming from the view of a cardiologist. Right. Sure. And he's like, it's really just a breathing problem. OK. And I'm like, OK. <laughs> um, I mean, others have other ideas. But yep. but one, one of the things he's saying is because um, when we do get that that feeling of anxiety in us, it our our lungs don't expand as fully. We tighten up our chest, tighten up. And that I mean, that in and of itself is. You're not oxygenating. You're, not, right. you're right. not breathing as deeply. And then meanwhile, I had been learning about mindfulness and deep cleansing breaths and all of this. And I, and I started to realize that, wow, you're right. But then you bring in the psychological side of it. It's more about it's not even just the physiology of the breathing. It's also right. the psychology of getting present in the now to count your breaths, to feel the breath, to be present.
6: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things that even that you're bringing up is when people breathe, it's going to help sort of naturally when they breathe deeply and sort of purposefully, it's going to help naturally relax them when they're anxious. That lowers your heart rate, you know, very sort of maybe temporary, even this yeah. way. But it also sort of adds, like you just said, the psychological component where you're where your brain's paying attention to what you're doing. You're training yourself to really be more mindful about it. And so there's sort of it's, it's sort of killing two birds with one stone of the expression but yeah. what, you, what you're doing is sort of helping your body relax but also training your brain to sort of be different than it has been used to to sort of acting in in various situations and in context
2: it's funny I um, there's an app out there you can get that's called breathe yes and do yep. you have, have you looked at it
6: I have yes yeah.
2: uh, I have it in fact I, it came on on my watch about a half hour ago and it and it but every time it does I realize okay I'm not breathing Um because I'm in the ra- middle of a radio show. But then I also – but I also notice that sometimes when it goes off, it actually induces anxiety because okay. – <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm looking yeah. – now I'm being interrupted. Let me see. Oh, yeah, I got to breathe. I'm not even right. breathing. So, right. I mean, how do we not let – because this, if this is a mind game, um, we have to learn to suspend, to slow down our mind, right, and right. control it to a degree. And you're telling us it's possible, but it also isn't – it's not easy, I mean right. it is but it's not. It's, it's like exercise.
6: I was going to say exactly. The skills are easy, but it's, it's a matter of working them into your life. And, and exercise is the exact example that we use in our book. You know, if you want to be a world-class athlete, you have to train every day. If you want to just get healthy, lose some weight, and sort of better yourself, you still have to do something every day, whether that's changing your eating habits or, or you know, sort of your exercise habits. It's the exact same process as anxiety. So these things are very simple. We, we offer very simple skills. And sometimes people say to us, that's what you you know, that's what we're paying for you to tell us. But That's exactly right. Because we're not only going to tell you how to do it with the skills that we're offering, but we're also going to ask you to do it in a really sort of purposeful way, you know, integrating it into your week, integrating it into your life. And that's the key, I think, is sort of adding those two together to make sure that you're using these simple these simple sort of um, interventions for yourself, but also making sure that they stick
2: over time. Because, too, anxiety just even, it's, I, I don't know if it's a trait, but It it can also drive you to incredible success. It can drive you to really great things and and attentiveness and noticing certain information. um, It's kind of a gift. It's not just a curse.
6: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, some of the most successful people, you know, still will talk about how they get anxious about certain things, but that propels them to sort of do well to be who they are. Um, You're absolutely right. It can be a gift, and I think that's part of how we can ask people to reframe anxiety. You don't have to love every minute of your anxious mind or the emotions that accompany your anxiety, but we're asking you to just sort of think about it differently than you have been. It's not the worst thing that you've ever experienced in your life. It's something that can help you if you really pay attention to it and you find the meaning from it. That, that's a great way to sort of think about how you can change your life for the better um, by sort of welcoming it when it's necessary and when it's appropriate.
2: Are there other techniques um, along with either mindfulness or other areas that we, we could be doing that would get us some, you know, g- help us gain some ground on anxiety?
6: Absolutely. You know, I think one of the one of the things that probably doesn't get enough attention when we think about it is just sort of your activity level. Sometimes, you know, again, in this modern day and age, we are sort of hooked to our computers, to our iPhones or smartphones, whatever it might be, but also just thinking about how you can sort of add some dimensions to your life through exercise, through getting out, through yoga. Um, Just sort of being present with other people, rather than sort of connecting with them online, but actually socializing with them, talking with people, and just sort of modifying your life so that it's well-balanced, I think that's a huge, huge part of of helping people deal with their anxiety and sort of combat it in meaningful ways. there's lots of other psychological techniques, such as learning to sort of be more aware of your emotions and when they come about and, and what they do for you, the function of your emotions. Um, and, and that's all part of the book and, and sort of well explained in there. But it's a, it's a helpful way for people not only to pay attention to their life, but also to pay attention to the emotions they're feeling um, and what those might fuel down the road, whether it's anxiety, depression or other problems.
2: Hmm. Have, um, have you worked, I'm sure, or read about Elaine Aaron's work on high sensitivity?
6: I have a little bit. Yes, I, I'm sort of briefly familiar with it. Yes. I'm just
2: wondering: is there, so is there, is there a type of, you know, psychological mindset that might lead to more anxiety?
6: Yes, yes, there is. There, so, you know, again, people who are a little bit more sensitive, like, like you're sort of bringing up the high sensitivity. So people who are more sensitive to sort of feedback and sort of reactions from other people um, or people who even have sort of lower self-esteem might feel a little bit more anxious over time. So, you know, those things are, you know, stuff that, that parents can work on with their children over time or that they can help their children better develop a sense of who they are, yeah. um, a little bit more confidence about, you know, how they'll, how they'll sort of navigate the world and, and what they'll do to sort of contribute to the world and make their life better as well
4: yeah
2: is um i i guess uh are there other factors physiological i mean are there foods we shouldn't be eating uh we used to you know think people used to think just give kids sugar and it just sugars them up and they're bouncing off the walls and right. the sugar impact is caffeine things like alcohol
6: right Right. Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert on the eating part of it, but I can offer at least the tips that, like you just said, alcohol, drugs, you know, people often use those to self-medicate. So if they're feeling too anxious, they might turn to marijuana, for example, or they might, you know, drink to sort of assuage some of their symptoms. Um, Those can certainly be more harmful in the long term than than they are good, even just from an anxiety perspective, not from sort of a bodily sort of physical perspective. Um, They just don't help you to learn to deal with the anxiety, and that's the important part there. The other side of that is junk food. You know, people turn to junk food when they're sort of anxious or mm. they might look for comfort in the food that they eat, you know, whether it's a fun snack or if they eat too much for those kinds of things. Um, that, that sort of certainly is going to get in your way as well, because you're turning to coping mechanisms that aren't healthy for you. Uh, and, and that includes any kind of food or any kind of substance that people might use. Um, and that just doesn't teach you things over time. It, it really sort of gets in your way of learning how to effectively deal with your anxiety. That's good.
2: Good stuff. Um, as we go and, and leave, Give us one thing. I always ask for the one thing that makes the biggest difference. If we're suffering from anxiety, if we see people suffering, um, somebody we love that's close to us, what can we do to, to help lower the anxiety?
6: Sure. I think you know one thing that I try to do and what I encourage other people to do is to just try and reframe the situation, so meaning find some good in the situation. So not everything has to be bad. We don't have to perceive life as sort of this, this hard thing to navigate. It certainly can be hard to navigate at times, but look for the good in the situation. You know, There's always a silver lining. to Well, not always, but a lot of times there's a silver lining, and I think um, helping people find that is a good way to reframe the way that they're thinking. And the more reframing that you do over time, the more of a habit it becomes, and you, you just tend to sort of uh, be a little bit less sort of reactive to your anxiety or even looking for it over time. Mm -hmm.
2: So looking for the the positive if you can. Yeah, see the signs, the good signs as well. Powerful stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Dr. David Klemanski. Thank you for your great work and continue uh, your work there at the Yale Center for Anxiety and Mood Disorders. Also, everybody, go check out the book, Don't Let Your Anxiety Run Your Life. There's also uh, another version of it for your teenager. So if you see your teenager suffering from it as well, um, don't let your anxiety run your life from Dr. David Klemanski. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're talking technology and our senior citizens. They could go together hand in hand, and, uh, or are we just neglecting them when we just turn over technology to take care of them? Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Joining us in studio is McKenna Baus, one of our new uh, producers that is on the game. Social media expert as well. I try. McKenna, <laughs> you're the best. Thanks for being with us. Glad to be. And you always like to bring us um, a, a little curveball topic.
8: I do. So today, what I've brought in is a little thing about robots yeah. and elder care.
2: Because robots, Great. Yeah. they do everything
8: the robots they have a lot of really cool perks about them yeah. they are able to you know keep an eye on on The elderly record their health information. Mm. They can even have conversations with them, provide companionship. And so there seems like there's a lot of really cool possibilities. Right. Um, you know, ahead of us there uh, by 2050, um, approximately 16 percent of the global population will be considered elderly. So we're getting older. Oh, yeah. And it,
2: tell me about we it. We
8: need people to take care of them.
2: This sounds like that that show Big Hero Six.
8: Yeah, a little. Yeah, it's it's definitely reminiscent of Baymax, a little health,
2: you know, robot that just takes care of you.
8: Yeah, um, and so there seems to be some really good good things about it, but well, what could go wrong? That is the question. Um, there's some concern over whether or not it's ethical for us to just sort of are we just dumping yeah. the robots onto the seniors because we don't want to take care. And the then we neglect them. We, just we neglect him you even know,
2: more. mom has a button. She can push the button if there's a problem. So I'll call her Friday.
8: Yeah. Or what happens if they get really attached to the robots? They're already really, you know, sort of emotionally um, vulnerable. fragile yeah. and vulnerable because they are in so many cases isolated yeah. and lonely already. So what happens if, you know, Mr. Robot breaks?
2: Yeah. What if you have to get another, you know. You have to send it back yeah. to the factory. Does
8: that just add more trauma to the, you know these people's lives already?
2: Because they say having emotional connection it, it, it increases longevity. They mm-hmm. live longer. They're happier. They're healthier.
8: Yeah, it's really really important. Um, and the question is whether or not robots are actually able to do that job. Yeah. Right now in Japan, um, there's been developed these sort of stuffed robotic seals. Oh, wow. That they have in nursing homes that act as like companion pets and then you like plug it in and charge it during lunchtime. Oh, interesting. Does it And they pass it around. It, does it pick up data? It responds to like touch like when you pet it. Oh. So it acts sort of like an animal but yeah. it doesn't have to be cared yeah. for in the you same way. You don't have to take it out for a swim. Um, you know, don't have to pick up after it. So that's a plus. It's kind of nice.
2: They can talk to it.
8: Yeah, and so it's very popular there. Um but then again, some other robots that have been created to help out with the elderly are they created these body dryers that can help, you know, dry them off after a shower because it's not always easy for them. Yeah. They were all terrified of it. Oh yeah, because you, don't you want walk some... into this big like jet stream of air. And they're like, no, thank you.
2: <laughs> I need one of those. Yeah.
8: it would make life easier. Wouldn't but it?
2: you walk it. I mean, and you're not dressed. That's you're vulnerable. And then all of a sudden, something starts. Blowing air on you like you're at a car wash. When well, your dentures could fly out. Oh, it's not
8: good. Not good. Not, not good. good.
2: So that's a problem, right? Yeah. Plus the little uh, what's the little robot that cleans your floor? Roomba. You can get a Roomba. Don't pretend like you don't know. I, I can never. <laughs> I, I, I can never remember if it's a Roomba or a Rubik's cube. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to get my mom a Roomba and just put a, a little coonskin cap on it, like a Daniel Boone is that what, a raccoon <laughs> skin cap? And I was going to put that on it and tell her we got her a dog that cleans up her floor.
8: But, you know, that's all that dogs really do anyways.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but she'd figure it out. The um, I guess it could help, but it can't replace humans.
8: Yeah. And so um, there's an example of another robot that's come out. It's called the Omni. And it basically looks like a big iPad on a long skinny pole with wheels. Oh, I've seen And so that. it rolls around and it can interact.
2: The Romney?
3: With people.
8: The <laughs> that's, Omni. I thought
2: that was the Al Gore.
8: Oh, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> ah,
2: that's the Mitt Romney. Um, we've only got about twenty seconds, but what would be cool about that Romney um, is you could actually it could go around and come bring it right to. It could bring the the screen right to the senior, and then you could talk to it.
8: And that's what people do. But does that just give us more of an excuse to not go visit them? Because yeah. oh, it's easy for them to use technology now and I don't talk to. Me. And
2: it's got great hair too. Very <laughs> it, handsome. It just comes back to being human, well. right? We we've got to be human still. Yeah. Oh, man. McKenna, good good ideas, good insight. You can't get a robot, but hey, let's also just be good people. Let's take care of our seniors and love them like they deserve. McKenna Bouse is her name. She's the bomb. She's also on digital media with us. So come check us out at Dr. Matt's show. We'll take a break. We'll be back. Stick with us.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
2: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side, joined, of course, by my compadres, Terry South, Jeffrey Simpson, the gang. We are here, locked and loaded, ready to uh, help you get through this crazy day. It is uh, today's Wednesday, right? Is it Wednesday, or is it Tuesday? It's Wednesday. Wow, it's hump Day! Yeah, I think I'm I'm always giddy about getting to the weekend, so what? I can go watch four basketball games of my children. Oh, and sit there. Also, today we will be actually getting very deeply educated by Dr. Brian Willoughby. Our great uh, friend from Brigham Young University, and he's going to talk about careful confiders and caring confidants. Mm. How to be able to be someone people will confide in. Or then, how,
0: maybe p- how to select somebody.
2: Ooh, or find somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Either way. Because, I, Terry, I think you need one.
0: Yeah. I think you need one. No, I really just would rather just have very superficial relationships with everyone. It just seems easier.
2: I've met your family. i met some of your cousins. Yeah. And uncles and Here's aunts. my
0: uncle and aunt, yeah. My and mom was very interested in that yesterday. That was
2: fantastic. Really, they are wonderful people. And oh, yeah. I know your mom's a wonderful woman. Your dad's a great guy. Your brother's incredible. Your sister's well, a yeah. bomb. It's just you were worried about. It's okay. Your wife's amazing. Oh, yeah. What about my family? Your family's, right. your family's incredible as well. They helped you through that whole freezing episode. And the electrician. Uh, the electrocution. Huh. That you went through the air horn, the air horn, the whole. Yeah, we got a big, big day. We'll also be getting to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation today's signing day. So that means every sportscaster in America, I guess, is chasing high school kids. chasing high school kids and calling them on their phone and trying to cut through. No, no, no.
0: All- You're 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 Snapchatting. You're texting. You're tweeting. <laughs> oh. That's how the kids –
2: Because every high school kid has to choose which college we're going to do, and today's the day – the first day they can do it.
0: Yes. They can do it at any time, but most of them do it today.
2: And this is where they make big announcements?
0: Fax machines still exist for this day in football offices across the country.
2: Um, Jeff's taking notes. Jeff, what
3: what are you writing? No, this is signing day. Yeah. This is sound of high school students signing signing. on, on a chalkboard. No, it's a pencil.
0: I don't know if they're still doing it, but the University of Alabama used to have a streaming camera pointed at their fax machine. You could log on to their football website and watch the fax machine as the the papers would come in announcing who really? the next place. What's how, a fax machine? Exactly. That's how in-depth this was. And that's the other problem is a lot of people don't have that, and they don't take, like, email or it yeah. has to be a fax. They want it that way so you, they have your physical signature. That
2: is – oh, yeah, you need them as signature. None of this
0: electronic stuff.
2: Yeah. Well, it's a big day no matter what it is. So we'll talk to those guys about what they're finding out, any big signees or, um, you know, we could also talk about the big game coming up.
0: There's a game, yeah.
2: Really cool moment, I thought, because I'm a sentimentalist, is um, Tom Brady is asked, who's your hero? And he talked about his dad and then he broke down crying. This is the Super Bowl, you know, you love him
0: or you hate Tom Brady. He was also asked about uh, his good friend, Donald Trump. And he said, no comment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They ruined that. So actually, we will post Tom Brady's uh, great response about his dad. That was cool. Yeah. Because, you know, it's the dads and moms that get these kids through this to the Super Bowl. Yes. Everyone gives Bill Belichick all this praise. It was Tom's mom and dad. Right. To a point. Come
0: on. It got them to college and then he was...
2: You tell me where Tom would be if it hadn't been for his mother.
0: I understand, but there's a point where Mom and Dad drop off, and
2: oh, do they? Oh, yeah, that's when Giselle, yeah, Bunchen came in.
0: Yeah, <sighs> she says this is why you need to wear Uggs, so yeah. that every football fan makes fun of you.
2: Ugg boots, <laughs> crazy. So we'll we'll, get, we'll bring you that incredible enlightenment. Um, Lots going on, and uh, we got to get to the headlines first so we know what's going on of import. What's going on, Terry, around the rest of the country?
0: A draft executive order circulating among the Trump administration lays out a plan to filter out immigrants who might require public assistance and to deport immigrants already living in the United States who depend on a form of welfare. The documents obtained by The Washington Post describe the power to deny admission to any alien who is likely to become a public charge an outline method for determining whether an alien is deportable for having become a public charge within five years of entry. That is to say, if they receive public assistance via food stamps, welfare, Medicaid, among other options. Oh, boy. A second draft order entitled Executive Order on Protecting American Jobs and Workers by Strengthening the Integrity of the Foreign Worker Visa Programs. Really long title on that one. Yeah, yeah. Calls for the elimination of the so-called jobs magnet, encouraging undocumented immigrants to travel to the United States, and calls for the repeal of work visa provisions found not to be in the, quote, national interests. Those are just floating ideas. Well, what do you think? If they're on welfare, no, you got to get out.
2: No, No? don't. Oh, wait. Here's what you got to do. Okay. Let Donald just—he signed his executive order. Yeah. Now just let Congress— Figure it out? Go make law. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because if he keeps doing this, it's just going to create more problems. Let Congress go quietly— blow that up yeah we'll see what happens ah. that's just an
0: idea okay. someone's okay. going on. also yesterday I, I've told you that we were talking yesterday after the show you need to watch the White House press conferences they're just I know I watch epic. them every day. awesome Sean Spicer is the uh, se- press secretary
2: hardest job in America
0: yesterday they were talking about words I know there's a word Ban. Ban. What is ba- ban? They're saying it, it's an immigration ban. The White House says it's not an immigration ban. But then somebody keeps it's tweeting. It's extreme vetting. it caused some confusion. Play clip three there. This
7: was
4: President Trump's tweet yesterday. If the ban were announced with a one-week notice, the bad would rush into our country during that week. So he says it's a ban. I mean, it's he's a ban. using the, the words that the media is using. But at the
7: end of the day, it can't. Oh, you know, hold on, hold on, hold on. It can't be. It can't be. It can't be oh, Jonathan, thanks. I'll, I'll let Kristen talk. Ooh. It can't be a ban if you're letting a million people in. If 325,000 people from another country can't come in, that is by nature not a ban. I understand
8: your point, but It is extreme vetting. The president vetting. himself called it a ban. I understand. Is what? he confused or are you confused? No, I'm
2: not confused. I think that the words that are being used to describe it are derived from what the media is calling this. He has yes. been very clear that it is extreme vetting. It's extreme vetting.
0: Okay, so the press secretary just said... The reason the president is using the word ban is because you people on TV keep using the word ban. Right. But it's not a ban.
4: Right.
2: Right. But see, you know what it is? Obamacare really isn't Obamacare. No. It's the AC... The Affordable Care Act. Act. ACA. Mormons aren't really
3: Mormons. They're members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But people call us Mormons.
2: It's just the vernacular. It's just the words we use... No one really know, – everyone knows that, that it's the ACA. It's not really called Obamacare. Oh, OK. Because on the order, it's right. it was the ACA. OK. So it's but not – But Obama will use Obamacare because that's what the words people are using.
0: Right. So it was just interesting. The press secretary blaming the media. Yeah. Because the president uses the word ban. Because they use the word ban. See, that's when the, it's not a ban.
2: That's the point. When and, the, when the boss uses the word ban, everyone uses the word ban. And if he really, but I think this is Spicer trying to spice it up.
0: I think it's Spicer again holding a press conference yeah. where huge parts of it are trying to clean up Twitter use by some other guy.
2: Some other guy
0: <laughs> trying to figure out a way why it's somebody else's fault because right. it can't be the boss's right. fault, right? And it's really interesting to and watch the juggling. They it's will great.
2: always say it's a media thing, right? So it's this is the media. What were they calling them? The 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 opposite party, the counter party, the, the opposition, the opposition.
0: I read that thing from inside sources in the White House saying that if there's a problem, it's either Republicans who are against us, right. or it's the media.
2: And by the way, the insiders in the White House are really four people.
0: Yeah. They're just – yeah.
2: And they're not going to be there long. No one else is on the inside apparently.
0: Um, Other news, Trump cancels a trip to a Harley-Davidson factory in Milwaukee over fears of protest.
2: Well, didn't they cancel it?
0: The White House did. No,
2: but I thought – I think the people, the manufacturing plant said –
0: I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah, I heard somewhere where
2: they they were afraid of – Protests, So they sent it back to Trump and then Trump canceled
0: it. And they canceled it. Also, uh, according to a report from Politico, the White House is temporarily banning spokespeople and surrogates from appearing on CNN. Wow. And the unnamed official says we are sending surrogates to places where we think it makes sense to promote our agenda. And CNN is not that place apparently.
2: Interesting, which is Obama and the Democratic Party did not go on Fox forever.
0: for Quite a bit.
2: And everyone thought that's ridiculous. You should go everywhere. Yeah. What is –
0: it's yeah, just—it's just like they just their...
2: handed each other the playbooks.
0: Yeah. Also, in non—you know—non-political, non-political anxiety-inducing news, uh, we're just days away from Super Bowl Fifty-One in Houston. It appears Pennsylvania has the hottest event in February, though. What? Groundhog Day Thursday. Oh yeah. Apparently, people are shelling out big bucks to celebrate the traditional holiday with—is it Puxat-tawny Punxsutawney Phil? Tony Phil. The, the website Trivago uses an average hotel rates for Puxa County around. Groundhog Day and found that they're actually more expensive than those in Houston for the Super Bowl. What? According to the website, it costs $450 for a one-night hotel stay to see the Groundhog.
2: Can you imagine what that hotel room is, li- is like?
0: Yeah, I know. Compared to $340 for a room go. in Houston to see the Super Bowl.
2: <laughs> Nothing says Punxsutawney the average
0: better rate. better than poker. The average rate uh, for a hotel there in Puxa County $300 it drops. The wow. hotels drop $300 the day after the day groundhog after.
2: Day. Yeah. Well, it also depends if he sees his shadow.
0: Right. Well, no, it's his shadow or not. It's no, like, right here.
2: It depends if the weatherman if they need to stay yeah, because or, like groundhog day. You get caught in that it it loop. just kept yeah, once you're in the loop, you're paying 400 and something every day forever. If
3: you see the shadow, uh, you have to pay an extra $100. If you don't see it, then
2: you are refunded $100. Huh. How come Pennsylvania has their own polka?
0: What's that? Well, that's one of the polka capitals of the world.
2: Oh, I know, but I think I, I want a polka.
3: By the way, if you uh, try booking a hotel room on uh, the anniversary of the big polka fest. Oh, I it's love It's a nightmare, a polka.
2: though.
0: I'll, I'll get you the channel, Matt. You, there's a TV show you can watch polka almost every night. About 8 <laughs> o'clock, there's a polka show. It's such happy it's like music, Big Owl's poker show or something. It's Does out it? of Upper Minnesota. Look at yeah. it.
2: you! Just cannot bob. I mean, we're all bobbing to this, and now we all want a
0: bratwurst. Keeps the accordion alive.
2: Bring me a brat. By the way, Matt's uh, favorite. Uh, my instrument. favorite instrument. I played it as a child. Yeah. The bratwurst. Yeah, hmm. really hard to learn. I would think you'd have to poke some holes in that before you yeah. could play it. You just bite off both ends. I see. It's really good. Hey, um, <laughs> crazy story about. Uh, driving so there's a lot of excuses for why you're speeding right you know my cruise control was on sorry i didn't know i was going down a hill i had my daughter use that one once i had to speed dad i was going downhill um an emergency needing the toilet and not seeing the signs are all common excuses right for why people break the speed limit but this one you've probably never heard of before a driver in western australia told police it was the wind's fault he apparently was caught speeding 10 miles over the speed limit, but uh, he by by the way, driving through the outback. But he blamed it on the wind was pushing me. Sounds it's like wind. an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Doesn't
3: that happen in that movie, The Happening? I don't know. Does huh? it? Which causes everybody to kill themselves.
2: Wow, that went yeah. dark. Yeah, no, I don't think this is the same thing. Okay. This guy just is, you know, he was 10 miles over. Why are you driving so fast? Ah, the wind. I just caught it. The wind's caught me. I put my cells up. And once my sales went up. Isn't it the worst when you get a ticket for 10 miles over? If,
3: you want, if you're going to get a ticket, you want it to be like I was going 20 miles over, 15 miles over. Do you really want that? That's just more money. Well, I just want it to be more justified. I'd just
2: rather not have a ticket. Hmm. I get a lot of tickets. As, as a guy that gets a lot of tickets, not a lot, but I get one a year.
3: Did you get one for fleeing the site of an accident the other day when you bumped into
2: that guy? No, because he had me locked in. So you got out, and you fled, though, on foot. Well, I punched him, and then I just... I sucker punched him, and then I ran, screaming all the way across campus. Ah! Audio. Ah! I happened to have my cell phone on. (laughs) Captured all of it. No, uh, of course I stopped, and we... Shared information? Like life stories? Mm -hmm. Tell me about your childhood. Well, I was born in Provo, Utah. It was a great moment. Thanks for bringing it up again. Good times. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Dr. Brian Willoughby will be joining us talking about who you can go to, you know, and how you can be somebody that people will turn to and share. And how do you keep confidences? All that stuff. Up next, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Dr. Brian Willoughby is an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. He also uh, was the director of the Relate Institute.
4: That's
2: right. Are Are you... Okay. The Relate Institute is a really cool tool. It's a nonprofit organization that helps you. You can go on, you fill out some assessments, and then it tells you what you need to work on. Everything that's wrong with you. You do it. Your and partner does it. Yeah. And 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 how to bridge the two. Right. Yeah. And you used to be in charge of that, and you've moved on.
7: Yeah, that's right. We've, we We've got some... Business development's going on with uh, moving Relate. So Relate's still going to be there. Um, We're still going to have the website, everything. None of that's going to change, but um, we're hoping to be able to get it to more people. That's the big thing. Did I get it right? You're a professor. I am.
2: In the School of Family Life.
7: You're not an associate professor. Well, no, I am an associate professor. Okay. But you're still, okay. I profess on a regular basis. I profess
2: to be a professor. Ah, you're good, man. So um, you're still married. Yep. I just wanted to clarify that. That's just funny.
7: Yeah, We just had our 15-year anniversary. Congratulations. Well, thank
2: you. You walk your talk. Yes, so far. And four beautiful kidlets. Yes. So tell me this. When you go home at night, because it's hard because you have to – you're studying, you're researching, you're teaching, and then you got to – let's say you have a little problem. You want to confide in somebody. Mm-hmm. Do you Do you go to one of your fellow professors that are all trained in this great counseling field? or do you just go home to your wife where do you go where does a where does a professor in marriage and family go
7: well as my wife would be very quick to tell you she gets the brunt of does of, she? of my complaining you about, take about the world i take it home and she she does an excellent job of sitting there and nodding her head
2: <laughs> just and like letting a me counselor. rant
7: and and letting me talk about all the things that i'm frustrated with so she, she is my primary support and, that's and great. confidant
2: that's that's what we need, though. Some people don't know where to go, and we don't know how to be a confidant. That's right. So talk about it. What is it? Because it's there's a lot of stuff you can say and you can't say. You shouldn't say. There's stuff you have to you have to be a certain way so people want to come to you, come That's to right. you and confide.
7: Yeah, I mean, on on the confiding side, we know that all of us, right? We all get to that point where we have so much pent up frustration or anxiety or stress, whatever it is. That we need to unload, yeah. and we need to talk to someone. We're all like that. Um, and so it, it is important that we have someone that we can do that to. Right. Now, one of the important things, though, and this this is one of the most important aspects of confiding, is that there's two reasons why we can confide in other people. One is simply because I want to get this off my chest, and I want to feel better.
2: Yeah, kind of the cathartic.
7: Right. Yeah. Which can be okay, but that's actually one that can be problematic in some ways. The other way, or the other reason why we confide with other people is to actually use people as a resource Hmm. and to get help and to get support and to get ideas about, hey, I'm struggling with this thing at work. I'm struggling with this thing in my relationship or with my kids. I need more resources to try to help in that area. Yeah. Which can be a positive thing.
2: Right. So do we need to differentiate if somebody comes and asks for advice, if they just are trying to vent or if they actually want advice? Like I realize a lot of times when my wife – says she like, acts like she wants advice. She mm-hmm. doesn't. She just really wants a clearinghouse, somewhere to right. vent.
7: Yeah, and that, that's part of being a good listener, part of what we call being an active listener. Being a listener is not just sitting there and, mm-hmm. and just yeah. taking it, right? It's, it's asking clarifying questions yeah. and saying, what do you need right yeah. now? Do you need that person that will just sit here and vent and tell you how stupid the world is or how stupid your friends are? Or do you need someone? Are you looking for advice? Or are you looking for a different perspective on right. this issue?
2: Is most of us aren't very good at this,
7: I don't think. No, not at all. Because usually on the listening side, unfortunately, even in families and relationships sometimes, we're thinking about all these other things that we need to do. Yeah. Because people don't tend yeah. to come confide with us at the most opportune times. Right. We don't sit down and say, hey, bed. you know, I've, I've got 45 minutes. Is there anything you want to talk about to me yeah. for the next 45 minutes? I have nothing to do. Right.
2: It's never that way.
7: Um, and so, so usually that becomes one of the problems is we're not willing or we're not able to give that time. Or we are giving the time, but we're sending all these nonverbal body language signals mm-hmm. that say, hurry up. I've got something else to do. Well, and a lot of times
2: they're, they're just hanging around. Like they're not even verbalizing they want to talk. Right. But they're lingering. And yeah. So there's these subtle signs that they have more to say.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's the other side is that people – and this gets into mind reading a little bit of I want you to ask me what's Yeah, what's wrong.
2: And in your head, back of your head, you're like, I'm not asking him because I don't have time for this. Right. So and that, that's, where,
7: that's where that negative cycle can be developed and you sit there and, and then all of a sudden oh, oh, oh. you've got a friend or a spouse that's mad at you and yeah. you don't know why.
2: That is so sad. But I because mean, the person is coming to confide for a reason. Right. It, what, what if you have somebody that, that does it a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So you become, you've become their uh, – like their body pillow. You're yeah. the one that they have to – they can't go to bed until they can just cuddle yeah. up and give you some yeah. information. But maybe not in that – I mean I have people just in my neighborhood or my friend group that the minute they see me at a game, they just – they want to lay it out.
7: Right. That's what that first distinction I talked about is really important is that the most likely reason why that happens is because you are that body pillow. Like yeah. you said, you're the stress ball that I yeah. can squeeze. Just keeps squeezing And every time. I feel better and I can leave. And and that's actually not necessarily the best, healthiest kind of relationship no. to develop um, because typically when people do that, when we go to other people and we confide in them and all we're trying to do is just feel better by venting, yeah, we typically aren't solving any of the issues that caused the stress in the first place. Right, right. And so oftentimes if that's what someone's doing, they're coming to me all the time asking for advice, but really they just want to talk and have me validate them and say, you're completely in the right. Yeah. is. is is it might not be the healthiest type of confiding relationship. Is maybe I do need to try to offer and say, "Hey, you know what? I here's some advice. Here's some things that I would do in this, you know, situation." And if the person then doesn't want that, well, then that might slow right. down. Right. So, well, you're maybe not stress relieving yeah, anymore. Yeah,
2: that's right. Then don't come you're back. You're actually
7: telling me to do stuff. <laughs> it's um,
2: it, but it, it really is. It's it's almost an art, isn't it? It's something that, but every human being, we we should have, we should be the kind of person that someone can turn to. At some point, right. But we also, we also. It almost seems like we have to be the kind of person that will get over our ego enough to go confide. Some won't confide. Do men confide more than women? Do women confide more than men? You know, it's. Is there data on that?
7: There, there's not a lot of data that suggests there's massive differences, although we oftentimes assume that yeah. women confide more. But it's not so much in how much we confide. It's in who we confide. Ah, one, one of the interesting gender differences, particularly in marriages, is that when men get married, they tend to restrict their social network. Hmm. In other words, not that they don't have friends, but they – you know a single guy does confide a lot in his single friends. Yeah. When a guy gets married, he does tend to turn more often to his wife, and his wife becomes his primary source of venting and mm-hmm. advice. Um, women don't do that as much yeah. with their husbands. They tend to maintain their social circles. They might shift their friends a little bit, um, but married women tend to still confide a lot in their peers, which in, which creates this interesting dynamic, particularly when marriages are having some conflict Right, because then for the male, for the husband – the primary person I would talk to is the person mad at me right. and the wife still has a friend network, a peer network that it's she true. can turn to.
2: And a lot of times you'll you'll see that your wife – she's already told – like we have a son on an LDS mission and everyone in my neighborhood knows about his letter today. Mm-hmm. But sometimes my wife will have forgotten to send it or hasn't updated me yet and – or on anything. But she's talked about it all day. Yeah. But she talked to about it to another network. Right. And then you're like, yeah. I guess I'm out of
7: network. Yeah. That's so now right. I'm an out of network <laughs> yeah. doctor. In fact, we think that's one of the reasons why men cheat more than women. is because we know most infidelity in relationships is not physically based. Right. It's oftentimes emotionally based. And so for a lot of these husbands, if I'm struggling in my dating or my marital relationship and there's this other woman who I can confide in, and I can talk to and right. I start feeling emotionally connected to. We think that actually is one of the reasons why because a lot That's of right. men don't have people other than their wife or right. their dating partner to to talk to.
2: Isn't that interesting? And even the wives a lot of times are telling us we need friends. You yeah. need more friends. Mm-hmm. But we also don't. Like we – I've got you. Right. i got the kids. Yeah. I don't need – it's weird, too, because then you get too many friends, and then all of a sudden you're like, you need fewer friends. Right.
7: You need to spend more time at home. <laughs> what
2: is your deal? Well, this is great insight. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, uh, associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. And uh, we are walking through how to, how to be somebody that people can confide in and how uh, to care and, and, and keep confidences as well. We'll get back to all of that more with Dr. Brian Willoughby. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show in studio with us Dr. Brian Willoughby, an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. And uh, Dr. Willoughby, in his research, he focuses on young adult dating and relationship patterns and has specific expertise in dating, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation, marital attitudes and beliefs. Boy, right. that is a fun dinner. It is. Date with yes. you, another couple. Yeah. Don't, do you notice that a lot of them are always like, are you trying to figure us out?
7: A little bit, yeah. I, I'm actually most worried. I've got a 13-year-old son now. Oh, boy. And so he's getting close to the, I'm gonna, I, I already feel bad for him, but <laughs> yeah. I've already confirmed with my 11-year-old daughter that she gets to decide who she's marrying as long as dad approves. That's right. And I'm one of the only fathers in the country that, because a lot of fathers say that, but yeah. I can say... I'm one of the top people in the world in this. That's so right. It's, it's I not, can tell this you. This has nothing to do with me being your father. This is just me offering my professional your pr- services.
2: professional services. And honestly, um, it's. You, I bet you have different conversations with your kids. Yeah. Because you're probably teaching them active listening. I yeah. mean, to the degree well, you can teach a 13-year-old. Trying to, yes. But you're probably practicing active listening. Yeah. Does, Do you notice that um, – so are, I guess are some people just born – as someone who people can just confide in, yeah, are they kind of naturally doing it, or yeah. do they do they grow that? How do we grow it
7: so so we talk about that a lot, right? People will say, well, that person's just really good at listening, yeah, or I feel like i'm you know people tend to come to me, and really, the thing i we think that that is that is more in, innate that is more personality is is empathy. Mm. There are certain people that are just better at empathizing with others um, and understanding them and kind of getting in tune with their emotions and so that that is something Reading that them. yeah that read them that 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 is something that kind of varies person to person but the one thing you can work on anyone can work on are the more the skill based things yeah. the communication the listening skills anyone can get better at that and even if someone you know i might be someone that innately is really good at empathy but I could still be a really bad listener. Mm-hmm. So I know exactly how you're feeling, but I don't care. <laughs> I
2: don't care. Get or out of here. Or I'm
7: not giving good advice. Either. Yeah. So, so the skill-based stuff is still really important. Anyone can work on
2: that. Because you work with a lot with the young adult. And um, I can imagine parents need to be somebody the kids can go to. Right. So what are some of the mistakes we make as parents that turn off the kids from wanting to come to us?
7: Yeah. One of the biggest mistakes parents are making right now is based on their personal anxiety about wanting to make sure their kids are okay, which is a great thing overall. But because the 20s now are such a hectic, anxiety-producing time – You know, even if you get your kids into college now, you don't know what their job prospects are going to look like. You don't know what their dating prospects are going to look like. And so what parents do with all of that anxiety is they tend to get a little bit too directive in the sense that we get this helicopter parenting phenomenon that we're seeing more and more in the 20s of instead of having a conversation and being a resource, right? So the idea is that if I've got a 20-year-old hopefully at that time they're mature yeah. they're independent not that we don't have a relationship but i am now shifted my role as a parent as a resource you, yeah, you come you're to me
2: resource not the source right exactly but you that's come to hard, me yeah.
7: with a and i can give you my perspective you know with my years of experience but then you're still making what decision works best for you a lot of parents now though are are going the direction of i will make the decision either for you or yeah. we will jointly make the decision together that's
2: crazy still at age 20 plus
7: Yeah. And and I get this a lot even with my students in my classes. They'll tell me about parents that say, well, you need to run your classes by me. Your class schedule needs to come by me. Or still, you know, providing incentives. Like, you know, when you have a 12-year-old and you want to give him or her to clean the room, you give incentives, right? I'm going to give you an allowance. I'm going to ground you forever. Um, Parents are doing that with their 20-year-olds. Now, around things like marriage is I have about a third of my students now, then I'll ask this question in class, say, are your parents incentivizing you to not get married? And about a third of them are saying yes. Yeah, My really? parents are offering me money, trips, cars to not get married. And that that, that establishes a very problematic relationship yeah. because it's it's maintaining that adolescent parent-child relationship through the 20s. But then we're still expecting these young adults to get jobs. Eventually and get, married. get married. Yeah.
2: Well, and you brought up on the show before that you want to marry – I mean you, you, you marry in your cohort. You marry in your age group. Mm-hmm. And if we're setting up conditions for them not to marry, right. sometimes the bus can leave.
7: That's right. Yeah, you can miss that, that marriage window, that, that optimal time when, you're, when your mate selection options yeah. are at the highest. And when you're
2: at a university with a ton of people around right. you to find somebody. Yeah.
7: Yeah, and that used to be the case. Is this is the prime opportunity? In fact, one of the other things we're seeing, and um, I, I actually have, have had some family situations where I've heard from from family members that have been in this situation is you get past college, you get in the your career, and all of a sudden you don't have any time. No, yeah, right? you're going to work. You know, you got your nine to five or more job now right. for a lot of. Because you want to look good. And then at the same time, well, now I, I still have to go to the gym. Because that's right, that's what everyone wants right. to do. And I have to eat, and I have to have fun. And where am I meeting people?
2: Yeah, right? you might get an MBA. Right, So you're going to night school two right. nights a week mm-hmm. and, you well, yeah, where do I meet them?
7: Yeah. And that's why online dating is so popular now in late 20s and early 30s because that that's what I can do at home at night, right. at midnight. But
2: you're also not skilled because you should have been learning dating skills in 18, 17, 18, 19, right. 20.
7: Yeah. And, and that goes back to the confiding thing we were talking about is, again, with the young adult population, this is where technology comes into play is it's one thing to have these face to face conversations it 's another about well oh. what if i 'm venting through text messaging totally or through facebook i'm going to vent i 'm going to confide to the world through my social media accounts yeah about this person that has wronged me
2: or you 're sitting yeah. you know in your bed with your mummy yeah. doing tinder <laughs>
7: yeah. which explains to us back to what we were talking about before about why are people maybe not developing these skills about good listening and, and how to give good advice. Well, in a world where people can vent through social media, I don't have to be a good listener. Right. I have to be a good reader.
2: Yeah. Boy, can I read. Yeah,
7: I can I can read those three sentences at a time, and I can like, and yeah. I can put an emoticon on that. Um, but I don't have to respond to you in any meaningful way. Right. I don't have to be in, the, in your room with you and, and be thinking about my body posture, thinking about my facial expressions. Mm. It's just clicking buttons.
2: Worrying about you, thinking about what your body – I mean reading somebody. Right. Yeah. So we – we kind of got to get out of the way.
7: Yeah.
2: As parents. I yeah. Mean, I, I'm trying to get my kid to date. Like, son, really? Mm-hmm. Like, I date, I go to dances. Well, maybe try another date. Like, go on another date in between the dances.
7: Right. Yeah. And yeah. he's
2: in high school. But, like, he says, you know, you're the only parent trying to get us to date.
7: Yeah. Well, like, it's just because you love him more than any other parent. I do. That's I love you. I,
2: so, Yeah. Your friends hate your friends.
7: Yeah. And the thing we know about. Kids, you know, whether they be teenagers, younger kids, or even young adults, is that when you're doing that and giving advice, you know, not not in a you have to do this or else way. Just here's my perspective. Yeah. Oftentimes they do come across and say, you know, Gosh, Dad, yeah. you know, leave me alone, let me do my own thing. But they're hearing you. That's it, and they're still thinking about it. And 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 oftentimes that does make a difference.
2: And that I mean that's the, it. That's what's cool about it is because a few days later mm-hmm. he's on a date. Yep. And I can't go back and say, see, I told you. That's right. I tried, but he doesn't want to hear it. Um, what if I want to confide in somebody? I mean, are there certain people, uh, the old quote, loose lips sink ships? Are there certain people that just I shouldn't open up to? It's yeah. going to get out.
7: Yeah. The, the idea of boundaries and relationships are really key. And, and when that, how that comes into play here is that it has to be someone that I trust. Someone that if I confide in and I'm talking about something that's personal, that I'm going through, whether it's in a relationship or in a career or in um, a social circle or with my family, it's got to be someone that I trust that wants the best for me. Right. Because the people that are going to go, like you said, blab to everyone else in the neighborhood are people that usually don't necessarily care as much about me. They care about the information. The information's exciting to them. Yeah. And so they want to go share it with people. If someone truly cares about you, they will keep that. You know, in, in in privacy, they won't share it with other people, and they'll be the most likely to give you this good advice that we're talking about. And so, I need to be seeking those people that I trust, and that you know. And sometimes you make mistakes, and you tell someone something, and you realize they have told three right. or four other people. And Brother. just like anything else in life, then you adjust and say, okay, that person is not the resource that I thought they were. Who do I have in my life that I can trust?
2: Is are there some people that just have a greater need to share? and are there some people that are can more easily just be vulnerable like there's i know a lot of people that are so closed they don't want to expose right i mean don't even want to go get you know a medical exam yeah. even though they can't walk
7: yeah that and that that's a barrier for a lot of people and A lot of that comes down to getting past this idea that other people can't help us. Mm -hmm. There's this fear. There's a couple fears at play for a lot of people. One is this kind of more narcissistic idea of, well, no one one can tell me what to do. Yeah, right. No one can give me any advice. I, I know what's best for me. So sometimes people have to get past that and realize that it's not about people being smarter than you. It's not about people knowing things that you don't. It's about differing perspectives. Everyone has different experiences in life, and oftentimes hearing other people's perspectives really help. That's one of the basic premises of group therapy Right. is that you know some people are like, what, what's the point of going to a group with a bunch of other people that are struggling with something?
2: Yeah, I don't want to just listen to that. Yeah.
7: Well, they have different experiences, different perspectives that you can learn from. Um, the other barrier for a lot of people um, is more about fear and anxiety, that whenever we're vulnerable, there's the potential for rejection. If I tell someone something private, there's always the possibility that they will ignore me or tell me that I'm stupid or act like they don't care, and that can be scary. And so for some people, they have to put themselves out there and and chance things with another person and say, I'm going to try to be vulnerable and hope that I have a good relationship with you, that you have my best interests in mind, and that you'll you'll be there for me.
2: Yeah. That's huge. I mean, it really is like the most basic human need, right? Is to know you're safe enough, safe with others. Right.
7: Yeah. That you can be vulnerable. Yeah.
2: And yet a lot of us just aren't very good
7: at it yet. That's right. But we know that that if we don't have that, that we don't do a good job doing this ourselves. Mm -hmm. We do need other people. That's why, you know, marriage, relationships, families have been around for all of human existence because we need that connection with other people.
2: And it's help us understand why, why sometimes is it the hardest to do with someone you're really committed to. Because of all people you should be able to do it with yeah. is your spouse, yeah. but that might be where you're most vulnerable.
7: It goes back to that rejection, is yeah. that if I talk to my friend and they reject me, it might hurt. Yeah. But because my spouse is the person I usually care about the most, their rejection will hurt me the most. And so that fear can be really high with a spouse or with a family member, you know, a sibling or someone else like that because if they reject me, what do I do now? Oh, yeah. If my spouse acts like they don't care about me, if my mom acts like she doesn't care about me, that can be really scary. And that's why we see that sometimes is that, well, I can talk to my friends. I can talk to my boss. I can talk to my religious leader, but I can't really talk to my spouse
2: she can't handle the truth. She can't
7: handle the truth. She, she or he, you know. They it, want
2: to. They're like, tell yeah. me what you're thinking. And, and you're we thinking, come up I with I these can't. excuses of, well, right.
7: you know, the, I know her really well. Yeah. And so she she won't listen or she won't understand. But oftentimes it does come back to that fear of, of rejection.
2: So that is a sign, I guess. If if you don't see someone opening up, don't assume it's you. Right. But don't not assume. Yeah. I mean, see if you can. Is there anything I can do to adjust? Yeah. And see if they'll open up with yeah. me more, especially if there's the if there's a relationship.
7: Right. Yeah. And in a relationship, if I'm sensing that my spouse is is not being open with me, not willing to confide in me, you know, sometimes what people will do, which is a bad thing, is they'll start nagging about it. Uh-huh. Why don't you ever talk to me? Yeah. We need to just talk. We need to just talk. Are you
2: having an affair? They start. Yeah. Then they start priming right. it with other stuff. And
7: instead, realizing that again, this might have to do with their anxiety mm-hmm. and and their fear about me. So what I just need to do is I need to find times during the day in our relationship to just love that person. Yeah. I just need to show them that I'm there and that I care and that I want to be. And then th- that will happen yeah. naturally.
2: Yeah. And then you could even bring it up. i noticed you come home at night and you're really quiet right. for the last month.
7: Yeah. What can I do? What can I do to help? Mhm. Right? And it's not about I want you to talk to me. Yeah, more. Talk to I want me you to do this. It's what can I do to help? Yeah. Whatever whatever it is. You need to go spend 30 minutes when you get home and have some you time. Yeah. Great. I love you. I want to support you.
2: That's cool. See, and that's again th- these marriage relationships because a lot of times we hear kind of in the media or you get the sense that marriage isn't important anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's critical.
7: Cool. Yeah. And people keep telling us that yeah. that you know, despite all the changes in the world and, and all the changes in in family patterns, marriage is still the central desire for mm-hmm. so many people out there.
2: And and without the skills or somebody to confide in and the ability to do that it's it's the, the the odds are not as good
7: yeah it gets a lot harder
2: hmm. it's almost like you've studied this Brian.
7: yeah i know
2: <laughs> you really ought to keep at this <laughs> that
7: that that is the plan
2: are you are you writing a book yet
7: i am i've just finished a book i'm looking at the proofs it should come out in a couple months
2: what's it called can you share it it's
7: called the marriage paradox oh i
2: love paradox
7: yeah it's all about young adults in trying to understand why are we seeing the marriage patterns we're seeing and the dating patterns we're seeing. They keep telling us, like I just said, marriage matters. I want to get married, but so many of them aren't. They're delaying. And so the whole book is kind of exploring – why is that happening?
2: Is it academic? Is it well, secular? What is it? How are you? It's,
7: it's based on a three-year study that I did and, and, and several mm-hmm. other projects. And so it's got that research component. But I, we tried to write it, my, my co-author, Dr. Spencer James and I. We wrote it in a way – we infused the whole book with stories cool. and quotes. We did interviews with young adults from around the country and, and, and we tried to make the book really accessible. And so, so it's a book that I think anyone you know could probably pick up if you're interested in that topic yeah. and get something out of it. That's
2: awesome. The Marriage Paradox. Well, we'll have you back and talk about it yeah. when, you're, uh, when you're ready to launch that bad boy. We appreciate you. Dr. Brian Willoughby is his name. Go uh, to his website. You can go to Brian Will- – is it Dr. Brian, Dr. Willoughby? Brian Willoughby. Dr. Brian Willoughby? Dr. Brian Willoughby. DrBrianWilloughby.com. And um, also if you want to look into the Relate Institute, you can do that, RelateInstitute.com as well. But uh, he'll be back. Uh, He is an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at BYU. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Normally, we'd be tossing it over to BYU Sports Nation. Today, however, um, they're very busy because of signing day. Today's the day everybody's got to, uh, well, not everybody, but high school students identify which university they're going to attend
3: and play for. I think they're not speaking with you because you mentioned that talking with them is like getting a colonoscopy. Oh, did I say that? Exactly those words.
2: I I think you miss.
3: I think if you were to rewind, check the audio, it it would be verbatim.
2: (laughs) I think you were probably doing something else during that segment. Says who? Says who? Um, Anyway, we got a lot of um, we got a lot of other stuff we can talk about. Again, do not despair. Just because Trump is, uh, you know, at this high speed pace and you love him even if you love him you're in despair because everyone's rejecting him or you know if you don't love him it's because he's doing too much just give it time nothing is more consistent in this world than change um in fact just ask a 75 year old woman who's just sitting there one day in the southern united states And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a tornado starts to come through her town in Texas. Seventy-five-year-old Charlzetta Williams was watching TV with her son on Saturday when a twister approached her home. They, uh, the two of them, then raced to the bathroom and they hid under a blanket in the tub for shelter. Right, good save. Right, good save. That's all. I mean, that's a great story right there. However, listen to this. The tornado continued in a northeast direction. At which point, it removed the roof from their home, and um, a woman then inside the bathtub. She blew away with the tub. She flew out of the. She flew with the tub out of the home, and the tub was deposited in the woods with the woman still inside the tub. And what did she say after she made it out of that? And very great question. She said, I wasn't looking. I was under that quilt, William said. I'm going to tell you, I don't want to ride through that another one, through through another one. I'm going to tell you, I don't want to ride now through another one. Do you want to know a scary thought?
3: What? What if she didn't have that blanket on her in the bathtub?
2: (laughs) I don't even want to think about think about that. Well, I mean, I guess she would she would have seen what she was doing she would have seen that she was flying i think that was
3: the glue that was holding her in there so to speak
2: you think the blanket yeah not like the forces of the wind no. or the hand of god quite honestly something was keeping her in the tub you're telling me you've never felt safe
3: underneath the blanket yeah i always feel safe and comfortable and warm and protected under a blanket. Did you fill that up on that uh, scout trip? That was the one exception. My point. But in fairness, I didn't have a blanket. I had a Snuggie and two sleeping bags. (laughs) No blanket.
2: See, that was your fatal error right there was the Snuggie. Never leave it up to a Snuggie, folks, when you really need... A nice blanket. As you know, we like to always end with a hero story. Americans raise one million dollars for a Texas mosque destroyed by fire. Anyone seeking advice that America is an, is not anti-Muslim, you need not look any further uh, than Victoria, Texas. We are very. Pro-Muslim taking care of them, apparently in Texas at least. Um, a GoFundMe crowdfunding page amassed nearly one million dollars from about twenty-one thousand people in three days since the Victoria Islamic Center was destroyed by fire. It was the second Texas mosque that had burned uh, to the ground in January. The causes of both fires were being investigated and have not been made public yet. But the people they took to the they took to the internet, and in doing so. Raised a million dollars for these families. Our hearts are filled with gratitude for the tremendous support we've received. A statement on the GoFundMe page reads, The outpouring of love, kind words, hugs, helping hands, and the financial contributions are examples of the true American spirit and humanity at its best. Thank you for all the donations from around the world. Folks, that is the real heroic spirit of America. So you can despair all you want. Or you can get back to work and just start serving and being the kind of person you want to be. That's why we do the show, to give you that hope, that idea, and uh, the information you need to take your life and, and make them better. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, make it a great one, and let's take care of each other.